Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where you stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have again watched a X-Men film. This time it is X-Men Days of Future Past, which sort of merges and discusses the continuities between the original X-Men trilogy with your Ian McKellen's and your Stews. Patrick Stewart's. <laughs> your Pian Ham Stews. You do remember where this came from, don't you, John? What do you mean? I think this is how it started. When we were talking about Charlie's Angels in 2019, I brought up Kristen Stewart and you you called her K-Stew. Did I? And then I, 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 I feel like this is it. I might just be making this up to excuse my calling Patrick Stewart <laughs> P-Stew. But like that was then why I went to P-Stew when I brought up Patrick Stewart because he was in the same movie. I guess. So Days of Future Past sort of like combines the timelines of the original. It makes it even messier. With the first class timeline, but raises more questions in an attempt to answer them. But we'll get into that into our deep dive. But first, we're going to talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Okie doke. I saw three movies in the cinemas this week. I saw Dragon Rider. It is a, a children's animated fantasy film directed by Toma Ashed. It's based on the Cornelia Funk book of the same name. And it's set in a world where, well, set in our world, but the idea is that dragons all existed years ago, but then human proliferation began and they've been driven into hiding. And so they're hiding on this mountain, but the humans are approaching with, you know, mining equipment and logging equipment and things like that. And so they need to find a new place to hide and live. And there's this legend of the rim of heaven, which is like this paradise that all of the dragons can can live in. But none of them believe it's... The rim of heaven? Yes. Gee, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Well, it was written in German. So. Oh, fair enough. None of them believe it exists, though, except for this young dragon called Fire Drake. He's voiced by Thomas Brody Sangster. And he and his best friend, a brownie named Sorrel, voiced by Felicity Jones. A brownie, Wikipedia tells me, is a, a forest spirit, despite the fact that it sounds like either a dessert or a racial slur yeah. it is a, a forest spirit they set out to try and find this place and they meet a, a human teenager who's you know living on the streets and he's running from police because he stole some jewelry his name's ben he's voiced by freddie highmore and he insists to them he tells them that he is a dragon rider this mythical like thing he sort of picks up on their conversation because he wants to get away from the cops that are chasing him and so off they all go together but they're pursued by a robot dragon named Nettlebrand, voiced by peace to what a coincidence he was like created by this alchemist to hunt dragons but then he turned on his creator but he still wants to eat dragons anyway i thought i read the book <laughs> when i when I was younger, but watching the movie, I realized I didn't. Um, <laughs> the book that you read was How to Train Your Dragon. No, it's it wasn't. A completely different thing. I, I mistook it for another Cornelia Funk book. This is just a really basic quest movie. It's pretty plotting in terms of pacing. You get some coming-of-age themes of all of these different characters finding their own internal strength and solving all of these problems that represent their broader emotional problems stuff like that the characters are okay but it's it's not really enough to keep an adult's interest i'm sure that for children this is this is perfectly fine but nettlebrand is a fun character the the villain he's quite amusing a lot of that is is patrick stewart's performance he is getting really into it there's some some funny well 
the closest the movie comes to funny, some stuff about how he's on online dating sites because he's hundreds of years old and he's lonely. Oh. But, like, he sends his little sprite minion out to spy on the group and and tell keep him informed of their whereabouts and the sprites like you know how will i how will i report back to you and patrick stewart just goes skype me <laughs> so he's getting with the times yeah it it looks cheap because it is cheap it's 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 a sort of a budget it was made in germany because of course it's a german book that it's a, it's adapting but it it's made on the cheap it's not very it, it kind of looks like tv cg animation mm. A little bit better than that, but not much. The thing that really tips me off is some of the rigid fabric that's in there. Like, a character wears a cloak at one point, and the cloak sort of remains like a like a piece of cardboard almost. Mm. Yeah, that's one of the telltale signs. To get a real sense of realism or groundedness in animation, you got to pay attention to, like, fabrics. Because mm. if they stay stiff, it doesn't... Work. You gotta make that cloak billow a little bit, guys. Yeah, I suppose if you've got young children, it might work for you. But if you're an adult, as I was by myself sitting in a theater, an empty theater, by the way, hmm. a theater that <laughs> held 180 seats, I was the only person there, and I can confirm that the movie starts automatically if nobody has bought a ticket because I arrived late and the the ads were already showing when I walked in. So. Hmm. That's interesting. Next, I watched Monster Hunter. It is a fantasy adventure film directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. It is based on the Capcom role-playing video game series of the same name. I use based on in the loosest term possible, in the loosest way possible. It's about a generic American military unit that falls through dimensions into the world of Monster Hunter, where all these giant monsters are running around. They're led by Captain Natalie Artemis played by Millie Jovovich. I don't see the point of this. I just don't. Like, what is the point of taking a franchise and adapting it if you're just not going to adapt the franchise? If you're going to do something else entirely and then just chuck the name on it? Because you're just going to, like... Monster Hunter fans are really into Monster Hunter, you know? they're, they're yeah. it's, it's Baroque. It's hyper-specialized, you know? It's not something that's in the mainstream... But the people who know about it are really into it. So what then is the point of using this title, which doesn't have that much mainstream recognition, if you're then going to squander your audience on this whole premise of American military people falling through a dimension into the world of Monster Hunter, which is not in the games at all? No, of course. Like, like it's like if they made an Elder Scrolls movie and it was about a bunch of American soldiers that fell into the world of Elder Scrolls and they'd never visited a city or a town in Elder Scrolls. They were just out in the middle of the desert in Elder Scrolls and there were four of the Elder Scrolls monsters and that's it. What bothers me so much is that from what I've heard, I haven't, I haven't personally played much of the Monster Hunter games, but the lore is quite deep mm. and the world is quite unique. In a lot of ways. Oh, how about this? What if an adaptation of The Witcher, but Geralt of Rivia is someone who's from our world, who's been sort of just dropped in there? But no, it's not even that, because they, they don't even, like, engage with any of the lore. They don't engage with the world. They never visit a town. There are only four species of monster in it, two giant ones and a whole bunch of smaller ones that comprise two different species. They spend... 
most of the time, they spent two thirds of the movie trapped on a rocky mountain thing in the middle of the desert, hiding from a, a creature that burrows under the sand, a giant monster that burrows under the sand and, and jumps out when they try to get off of it. So it's all brown and gray and that kind of scale. It just looks ugly and dusty all the way through. No talking sidekick cats. You get a cat towards the end, and it infuriated me. Because don't tease me with a sidekick cat if you're only going to have him on screen for three minutes. And then they have the gall to put him in a post credit scene, teasing that he will be in the sequel if they make one. I'm like, no. No, they're not going to. It's not a good movie. And this is the problem is, like, they bring in this cat thing, and, okay, here is this third act where they get off it finally and they get into kind of a, an oasis, a jungly kind of area, and all of a sudden some other characters show up. And finally there's some engagement with the lore and, and there's they, they talk about why they're there and what they're trying to do. And I'm like, okay, this should have been the movie from the start. We shouldn't be following Mila Jovovich. We should be following the these people in the world of Monster Hunter and what they're trying to do. We should have started out at their home. We should have followed them on their journey here. Like, that should have been the mission. And it, it just is a squandered opportunity. The world feels barren and uninteresting. It Again, like, this is a fantasy world. Like, you have so much... You have options to just do so much world-building and make it feel really detailed and textured, but there's no towns, there's no cities. You never really get much of the culture of these people or or the history of these people or how they interact with each other. There's some very cool images of, like, these people who actually exist in the Monster Hunter world, like, riding a, a an, an old tall ship... But it's like they're, they're going, instead of the ocean, it's going along the sand of the desert. And I'm like, where was all of this in the rest of the movie? Because the rest of the movie, we're just stuck on a rock with Mila Jovovich. And she's a boring character. You know, it's just not a good character. She is, she gets some okay stuff with, an, with a, a, a monster hunter world guy who's stranded on the rock with her, doesn't speak English. And so they sort of get their enemy mine. Like, at, at least there's that element there. Yeah. It's, it's the only thing that keeps kept me from nodding off, quite frankly. But even even when uh, even when these other characters do show up in the third act, they're not particularly interesting. I mean, I was taken aback and appalled by the appearance of Ron Perlman in a horrible wig, blonde mane of hair that he's got going on there. It looks like he's got a dead squirrel on his head that got the most emotional reaction from me that anything in the whole movie did so (laughs) with with movies like this i don't understand why we have to impose our own world onto these fantasy worlds Mm. it it doesn't make sense to me like even with something like the dark tower which you can see some of the logic behind it for for that there's in law reasoning in monster hunter there's nothing here is here is Ron Perlman's wig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, at least Monster Hunter fans are going to be able to see Rathalos in glorious CG animation, I guess. Here's the cat guy, and he turns up so close to the end, and I'm like, where was he this whole movie? Could his presence or more of it redeemed it? Absolutely. The presence of all of these people in the third act would have redeemed it all, because it would have been exploring the idea of Monster Hunter instead of 
Captain Artemis, stupid name, on a rock in the middle of the desert for an hour and a half. And, and the monster CG is impressive. Like, that's where they've spent all their money. I think that they probably would have been better off if they had spent less of the money on the monsters and actually more of the money on creating the world and then yeah. making it more interesting. Like, that's probably why they're stranded on a rock in the desert for so long is that they're trying to save money. It's probably cheaper that way. I've also got, I've got to call out, there are a few close quarters fight scenes between human characters and Paul W.S. Anderson is terrible at that. Like, really, it's it's so choppy and unintelligible. The editing is just obscene. But also, i got to call out, the movie just stops. It doesn't end. There's no conclusion to the story. It literally just stops. And it's like, hi, everyone. I'll see you back next time for the sequel. I'm like, screw you. I don't want to come back for the sequel. I mean, look, if they make a sequel, I don't think they will. But if they make a sequel, I will see it because I want to see more of that cat guy. (laughs) Right. But I won't do it happily. Let's put it that way. The film grossed 800000 on its first day of release in the United States and Canada, opening in second behind the new Croods movie. Yeah, but look, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. It's pandemic numbers, so we got to be fair. Yeah, but about opening that. behind the Croods. The Croods makes a decent amount of money. The first Croods movie made. Let me find it here. Like, there's a reason they made a sequel to it. The first Croods, mo- Croods movie made almost $600 million. Yeah, but it also came out in 2013. You would yeah. think that the time for bringing out a sequel would have been at least four years ago. Yeah, but they've had the show on Netflix or whatever ever since then, so... Fair enough. And Peter Dinklage is in it, so that's probably something. I'm sure that, it, I'm sure that, that day one box office is all of the Peter Dinklage fans turning out to support their guy. <laughs> Next, for the final movie I watched in cinemas this week, I saw Shadow in the Cloud. It is a movie, is a creature feature directed by Roseanne Liang. It's set in World War II. It's about a young Air Force pilot named Maud Garrett. She's played by Chloe Grace Moretz, and she boards a plane taking off from the tarmac in New Zealand at the very last minute. Uh, She has a special box with her that is sealed. She has confidential orders that she is to be transported to where they're going. And all of the men there are like, oh, we don't want this woman on the flight, blah, blah, blah. So they put her in the turret for takeoff. While they, fig- while they look at her orders and figure out if it's legit or not, they put her down in the turret that faces below the plane. It's like this troop carrier. And after takeoff, she tries to get out again, but the handle on the inside of it breaks off and she's stuck in there. And as the rest of the movie unfolds, she ends up being threatened by a whole bunch of things. She gets threatened by, obviously, the misogyny of all of these men who don't respect her and don't respect her position and really just aren't listening to anything she has to say. She is being threatened by Japanese fighter planes that she sees the wings of poking out under the clouds, but the men don't believe her when they tell them, when she tells them. And her cover starts to fail as well. They start to figure out that actually what she said when she got on is not entirely real. She is not who who she says she is. But also, there is a large bat-like creature on the underside of the plane pulling out the fuselage. (laughs) And they don't believe her about that either. Cue that clip from The Simpsons of there's a gremlin on the side of the bus. Uh, cue the clip from William Shatner screaming, or John, no, John Lithgow screaming, there's something on the wing of the play. Something out there! Oh. 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 There's a man on the wing of this play! 
There's that great gag in um in Third Rock from the Sun. William Shatner has a guest spot on it where he plays like the 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 leader of this alien race who comes to inspect the the thing, and he arrives on an airplane. So how was your trip, sir? Horrifying at first. I looked out the window and I saw something on the wing of the plane. The same thing happened to me. <laughs> Because it was like it was like a joke that had already been used earlier on in the series that when the John Lithgow character went on the plane, he got freaked out at the same time. But it was a turbine. This is just a this is a B movie in the classic style. It's like it was made for me. It's like someone drilled into my consciousness and put everything I wanted in a movie on screen. I adore this. Like I just love it to pieces. You guys, you need to see this. This is so up your alley. This is oh my god. So. <laughs> The style of it is so clearly trying to invoke that whole uh, 80s style that it has a synth score. Even if you don't see the movie, Jean specifically, listen to the score. It is so incredible. The font style is like the Stranger Things font. <laughs> it's got like, it's got such a, such a, a throwback feel to it. It's the, okay. So the first two thirds of the movie, with the exception of the opening minutes, are, her in the turret, and only her in the turret. All we see is Chloe Grace Moretz and what she can see from through the windows. And all of the men up above are only heard over the radio. Um, so it's this really tight, contained thing. And it's really well scripted. Chloe Grace Moretz is fantastic in it. She is really doing some really wonderful things. As, as you, you sort of hear the mystery start to start to evolve. And, of course... She's stuck down there with no defense. You know, when the gremlin comes over and starts breaking the windows, all of a sudden there are no windows anymore and she's hanging out over the over the Pacific. The trailer includes a lot of footage from the last 20 minutes of the movie because in the last 20 minutes of the movie, she leaves the turret and it goes bonkers. It goes truly insane, like totally out of this world crazy. And it is outstanding. It is fantastic. You need to be on the movie's wavelength at this point. If you're not willing to go along with it, then it's going to seem ridiculous. Yeah. But I mean, the premise I loved is it. ridiculous. The premise is ridiculous, exactly. But I, I just adored it. The, the directing, Roseanne Liang, this is her second feature. This is her first feature with a, with a decent budget and, and size to it. She is really good. She knows how to ground things. She makes some very interesting choices. I very much look forward to what she is going to do next. It has very fun special effects, both in terms of the creature and in, and in some of the stuff that's going on around the plane, especially as these Japanese fighter jets start to pop up as well. Um, the reviews, critics liked it. It's got a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes. Audiences less so. If you go on IMDb, it's like at a 4.7 or something. And when I went and looked at some of the reviews to interrogate that, it seems to be two different types of people reviewing it. The first are misogynists yeah. who don't like the fact that the movie is very overtly feminist. This is not subtext, it is text. Yeah. I'm not even going to try and deal with those people. But They're arguing in bad faith, so it's Yeah, the it. other group of people who are just like, Oh, it's ridiculous. It went too crazy at the end. To which I would respond, it's a movie about a gremlin on the wing of a plane. What, like, who saw, who reads that logline is like, 
you know what, I really hope they treat this seriously. I really want to understand this psychologically, how it would affect the characters if there was a gremlin on the wing of the plane. Psychologically, why is the gremlin doing this? It, it it's it's not really explained in the movie what it is or why it's there. It's sort of a, a throwback to, and they talk about it in the in the movie that there's a there was an urban legend in World War Two of of creatures that would dismantle planes, mm. and it was sort of a, a stand-in for human error yeah. that um that the actual gremlin was not some creature. The gremlin was yeah. someone who had made a mistake along the way, um, but. There are things to criticise. It maybe hits its themes a little too hard towards the end, is a little too overt sometimes when it might have been a little better to ease off a little bit. But also the other thing is it's it's co-written by Max Landis, who, if you know the name, you probably know it in the context of him being brought up fairly recently on a whole bunch of, of Me Too allegations. Yeah. And also being a bit of a douche. Roseanne Liang and Chloe Grace Moretz are just like... They're, they've been pretty upfront about the fact that there is virtually nothing of his original script yeah. that remains. It's been rewritten to the point of un, it's unrecognisable. It's Writer's Guild rules means that he still gets the credit, yeah. but they've they've been very... It might have been that he was the one who came up with the idea of hmm. World War II gremlin on the side of the yeah. plane. But but they've yeah. been pretty explicit about the fact yeah. that not much, if any, of his workers has survived many rewrites. Yeah. If I, we've been talking behind the scenes a few times recently about our top 10 of 2020. This movie came out in 2021 and and I know that 2020 was a weird year because of all of the delays and and there are just there weren't as many movies a lot of the really interesting movies ended up getting delayed so you kind of you you're searching for stuff to put on a top 10 list but if this movie had come out in 2020 it would definitely be in my top 3. Oh, like, really? That's how much I love this thing. You guys cool. need to see it. And you know what? It's worth seeing on a screen, speci- on a big screen, specifically for that last 20 minutes because it's bonkers crazy. Like, my, and my audience loved it too. The rest of the, the people in the theatre with me loved it. There were these these teenage girls in the corner who were very loud throughout the whole thing. And I I don't generally like that. But they were reacting in yeah. such a, a genuine way that it actually made it really fun. There's a moment in the third act, I'm not going to spoil it because it's it's the greatest moment in the film for my money. Like I leaned over to the person I saw it with and I said, that was the best moment in all of cinema. <laughs> that was the, it, It's so ridiculous and over the top. But this, this girl just shouted out after it happened, that was fucking awesome. <laughs> like... <laughs> You really need... You see, that's the stuff I w- like hearing mm. in the cinema. I don't like hearing people just talking about whatever else. I don't like hearing people be like, who's that? What, what just happened? I want a situation like we had in our Hollywood cinema class where we were watching Vertigo, and the nun just appears at the end for no <laughs> reason. Like... That's the that's the viewing experience I love. I'll make your deal. I'll see Wonder Woman this week if you see Shadow in the Cloud. We'll do our best. And and we were talking about uh, about box office earlier. Boy, you were gonna have to watch Wonder Woman anyway. I might not, just to spite you. <laughs> You'll be doing yourself a disservice. You will you will have to watch this anyway because when when we get to it on the list, we will be doing an episode on it. But we were talking about box office earlier on in in the the episode. I mean, just as as some context for how skewed the box office is at the moment. Shadow in the Cloud is currently the 10th highest grossing movie of 2021, having earned $389,000 worldwide. 
Usually you'd expect a few more zeros than that. Mm. The highest grossing movie this year so far, 28 million. It's a Indian movie called Master. That makes sense. Anyways. That makes perfect sense. At home, I watched more X-Men. Coming off of X-Men last week, I watched X-Men 2. Another superhero movie directed by Brian Singer. Starts with an attack on the US president by a brainwashed mutant who invades the White House while all the Secret Service people draw their guns and try and stop them from getting close to the Oval Office. And that was interesting watching, given recent events. (laughs) But it's actually all been set up by Colonel William Stryker. He's played by Brian Cox. He's got it. He's got it out for mutants. And so he kidnaps Professor X and he's got this devious plan where he's going to brainwash Professor X into using his mind control telepathy powers to focus on all the mutants in the world and and kill them telepathically. And, of course, the team has got to stop him. The team this time including Magneto and Mystique. They're teaming up with the X-Men. This is a much larger scale than the first movie. Much bigger budget. It broadens the mythos in a way that I like. All the Alkali Lake stuff. The Wolverine backstory. It's got a human villain this time, which is interesting. You, You look at the government and its role in suppressing mutants and being mean to mutants basically the x-men spend a lot of time on the run which is really interesting you get a lot of good dynamics of that they are actually fighting against the government it's not just you know magneto in a cave somewhere it's it's this broader force that's after them and striker is an interesting villain as well because you you get some stuff about how his son is a mutant a telepathic mutant able to put hallucinations into the minds of people and that he sort of tortured him and his wife and his wife ended up killing herself. And that's sort of one of the reasons why he hates mutants so much. But he also hates Xavier because he sent his son to Xavier's school and he wanted Xavier to cure him. But Xavier's just like, there is no cure, you know. And that's that's all interesting stuff interrogating some of the more emotional psychological stuff of of this universe brian cox is great brian cox is always great i really enjoy magneto's dynamic this sort of uneasy relationship that he has with the the x-men as he's teaming up with them i like all the stuff where charles visits him in prison i like that stuff i really like Again, just watching it now, and again, this is the first time I've really watched these movies as an adult. I love how catty he is all the time. Like when they're sitting in the X-Jet and Rogue notices him and Mystique giggling and looking at her, and she's got the the strand of white in her hair because she absorbed Magneto's power, and Magneto just goes, We love what you've done with your hair. (laughs) 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 That's... That's just great stuff. I love it. And it broadens the supporting cast as well. We get more stuff with Iceman, played by Sean Ashmore. He was sort of a background character in the first movie. He's more part of the team now. We get stuff with Pyro. We get these... these, And, and we get some stuff with the other students as well. You'll see Kitty Pride turn up. Jubilee. Colossus. And the finale is great. The finale at Alkali Lake that... Like, that's all great stuff. It's available for streaming on Disney Plus in Australia if anybody's interested. Next, I watched X-Men The Last Stand, directed by Brett Ratner. Jean Grey is back after the events at the end of X-Men 2, but she these mental barriers that Charles Xavier had erected in her mind uh, have broken down, and she has now become the Dark Phoenix, overrun by her own power and this split personality that she has. And she defects to 
Magneto's group. And Magneto was rallying an army to attack the US government because the government has announced that there is a cure now, that this corporation has come up with a cure for mutantism. And Magneto's not down for that. He thinks that this is the first step towards the eradication of of mutant kind. This has a terrible reputation. People really don't like this movie. I do. I think it's a lot of fun. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's flawless. It, it isn't. It's got a huge amount of problems with it, but I really enjoy it as I'm watching it. There are some great iconic moments, and they introduce a lot of really great characters, like Leech, Angel for the four scenes he's in, Ju- Juggernaut. I mean, bloody hell. Yeah, the, the script is clunky. I mean, I'm not going to argue that. It has such brilliant lines as, Don't you know who I am? I'm the Juggernaut, bitch! I love that line. You know, for, for a Dark Phoenix story, there's not enough focus on Jean. We should be seeing more of her development. We should be seeing more of her journey. That's a problem I have with Dark Phoenix as well, but we'll get to that next week. It zips along, though. It's got great action, and for my money, it has two of the best set pieces in the whole franchise. It's the There's a scene where Magneto and the X-Men meet at Jean Grey's old house, and there's the finale at the end on Alcatraz Island. I think yeah. those two sequences are, are two of the greatest sequences in this whole franchise. I think the cure idea, which I know is taken from a, a comic storyline, I think written by Joss Whedon, I think the cure idea is a really clever one. I think that that certainly plays into a lot of the themes that the movie that the movies have been dealing with in these first couple. I think that it's used pretty well. It's interrogated pretty well, you know, how that might be appealing to someone like Rogue who kills people when she touches them. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting dynamic that the movie should be credited for. There's that scene where like Rogue says, is it true? Is there a cure? And Storm's like, no, it's not true because there's nothing wrong with any of us. There's nothing to cure. And I'm just like, Storm, she she kills people when she touches them. You can shoot lightning out of your hands. Like, it's, it's not the same thing. But anyway, Kelsey Grammer as Beast is weird casting, but it's brilliant. Yeah. I think it's because he's got that very intelligent sounding voice. Mm. He's very erudite. And that's how Beast is in the comics. He's yeah. this very intelligent, learned... And it contrasts well with his bestial appearance. Mm. Yeah. Famke Jansen, as I mentioned last week, is just quietly great in all of these. It has an all-timer score by John Powell. I love the score. I mean, Phoenix Rises is one of the great dramatic orchestral pieces of the 21st century, in my view. And I I pick people have problems with the ending. I don't. I especially love the final scene of Magneto in the park. I think that's brilliant. The last shot yeah. is brilliant. There's a lot of reasons why I like this movie, and I get that there's a lot of reasons to criticize it, but, you know, it was a favorite movie of mine when I was younger, and it still is. I, I enjoy it quite a lot for all of its flaws. I next watched X-Men Origins Wolverine, it is directed by Gavin Hood. It is a prequel. It's set in the 1970s. We're seeing the origins of Wolverine. 
We learn that he has a half-brother, which is actually Sabretooth, Victor Creed, played here by Lee Schreiber, but he was in the first one, played by Tyler Mayne there. And, We've discussed that in the previous episode. And they're working for a young William Stryker, played by Danny Houston. They're sort of a, a mutant hitman team. Wolverine's had enough eventually, and he, he buggers off to Canada and uh, gets a girlfriend named Kayla Silverfox, played by Lynn Collins. But after a few years, a rogue Sabretooth finds him and kills his girlfriend. This makes Wolverine angry. And so he teams with Stryker to have Adamantium put on his skeleton so that he can go toe-to-toe with Sabretooth. Again, this is another one with a terrible reputation. I think this one's okay. I think that the the reputation is more deserved than The Last Stands is, but I still think it's overblown. I, I like that the idea that Wolverine is at least 170 years old. Yeah. The idea of, of him... I mean, where where was our prequel movie of him in like 1860? Like that's him him in like with with a ruffled collar on a horse somewhere. Yeah. Like where's that movie? Give us our cowboy Wolverine mm. movie. But this is not the most interesting version of this story. No. In terms of like him getting his metal claws, basically, the Merc team's not fully explored. And you know what? Wolverine is just too noble. Like, we're supposed to believe that he's this person who's done terrible things. Well, we never see him do terrible things. We're supposed to believe that he has something to redeem himself for. This is both in the X-Men movies and in this. Well, he he always seems way too noble for the yeah. the tone that they're trying to direct at him. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of rote. It's doing all of those the most annoying things that prequels do where it tries to explain every little thing. Did we really need to see the story of how Wolverine got his jacket? Like, does anyone care? Can't he just have bought the jacket at a shop? Does it need to have some sort of symbolism? <laughs> or just stole it from someone? I do like some of the other side characters, though. Like, I like John Wraith, performance from Will I Am. I think he's pretty good. And... I, l- I like Gambit. I like Gambit. I thought Will I Am was terrible in this. I thought you could see that he was not an actor, and and indeed, it's like this one other movie and Madagascar two, and then he was like, "Eh, this was a bad idea. I'm not going to be an actor anymore." I do like that scene between him and Saber. I do like that. Him and yeah. Victor, though. The. Ooh. <laughs> I can feel his mind, boy. That's funny. All of the stuff with the girlfriend is interesting. I think we needed more time with her. I think we needed to explore that emotional arc a little more. It has an appropriately sad ending, which I dug. Yeah. Seems to tie the ending into the actual Three three Mile Island meltdown incident in the 70s. Yeah. Turns out it was Deadpool's fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there are some continuity snarls here. I mean, there is a cameo from Xavier at the very end of the movie where he is standing, but per the first class timeline, he should already be in a wheelchair at this point. Things like that. Of course, there's the whole Sabretooth. How do you reconcile Sabretooth here with the Sabretooth in X-Men 1? We talked about that last week. And Deadpool is its a terrible use of Deadpool. I mean, what are the... I, I did read somewhere that apparently, like, one of the executives at Fox hated Deadpool as a character, hmm. and that's, like, one of the reasons that his mouth gets so shut. I do like that, though, the moment... Because you get a fair bit of Ryan Reynolds doing his Deadpool, Deadpool shtick at the beginning of the film... But not really. 
Not really. Yeah, but not he's, really. He's sort of like a like Deadpool if he'd taken a bottle of downers. Yeah, but I do like the look he gives Lo- Logan when Logan says, I guess Stryker finally found a way to shut you up. He sort of gives him the, come on, man. I mean, the best thing that came out of Deadpool in this movie was the post-credit scene in Deadpool 2. Yeah. It has decent action. The scenery is gorgeous. I love, this is just me, but I love all of those mountains and the wooded areas and things. Like, that's where I would want to live if I had the choice. I don't have many options for that in Australia, but I'll, I'll find it if I can and go there in retirement. Tambourine Mountain. The CGI is frequently terrible, though. Oh, yeah. Especially on the claws. Especially on the claws. I did. I do really like Danny Houston. I think he makes an effective striker. And just an interesting note that this is co-written by David Benioff, the Game of Thrones guy. I'm sure that someone somewhere will use that against him. <laughs> uh, I won't. But Someone's going to get really, really pissed about that. It's available for streaming on Disney Plus in Australia if anyone's interested. I think Last Stand is as well. I didn't mention that. Next up, X-Men First Class, directed by Matthew Vaughan. Set in 1962, it is a prequel again. It's about a young Charles Xavier, played by James McAvoy. He forms a mutant secret agency with the CIA. They're tracking Sebastian Shaw. He's a, a... the mutant Nazi Sebastian Shaw, not the actor Sebastian Shaw who played old Anakin in Return of the Jedi. No, this Sebastian Shaw is played by Kevin Bacon and Eric Lencher, played by Michael Fassbender here. He is after Sebastian Shaw as well because he was the guy responsible for killing his family when he was young in, in, in Auschwitz. So he teams up with the X-Men. This is super cheesy. It has a really unfocused narrative that has a lot of ideas that are thrown out here. Not much of it sticks. It had a really quick development cycle. The the time from it being written to it being filmed was very short. I feel like it needed several more drafts to focus it in a lot more. There are just bad explanations for things. The CIA formed the X-Men. It's, I mean, it's silly and it's cartoonish. They know who Charles Xavier is. And at the end of the movie, there's, they're like, oh, well, we can't find out where he is. He's literally running a school yeah. called the Xavier School for Gifted Children. <laughs> it's not like he's hiding. It's mostly just an excuse for character stuff, for us to see these people bounce off of each other. And it mostly works. But the cast is too large. There are too many... People introduced too quickly. I don't even know why Oliver Platt is here. I don't know what the purpose of his character is. They never even give him a name. Oh, his purpose is for Azazel to drop him. Yeah, well, they could have done that with any any other number of people. Get the the CIA guy. Get Matt Craven's character in there. He actually has a purpose, at least. Magneto, I also think, is on his own for too long in the first act. He takes too long to get to the rest of the X-Men. I do love that scene in the pub. Yeah. Where he's talking to the... Two former Nazis. That stuff's good, but like he just spends too much time in the first, in the early goings of it, detached from the rest of the narrative. And, you know, it doesn't capitalize on the time period. There was a way to look at this in the way that the, the modern day movies looked at it through the lens of the gay rights movement. There was a way to look at this through the civil rights movement. There are two black characters in this movie. Spoiler alert one of them is a traitor, the other one is dead meat. Emma Frost, played by January Jones, sets feminism back a bit. He wanders around with very little on for most of the time for no apparent reason. I, look, I'm 
I'm normally able to approach the movie on its own level and, and sort of try not to to assume the worst of it when it's dealing with those kinds of things. I, I think there are reasons why you can have a character like that, male or female. But the movie seems totally oblivious to the fact that it is objectifying her and sexualizing her to a degree that is absurd, especially considering that her character, she does some stuff, but not much. It would be pretty easy to remove her in a rewrite. It really does feel like an excuse for a half-naked woman to wander around on the screen for a while. And January Jones, not that she's given much to work with, but she is just blank here. It's not a good performance. I've got to also say, the script is really childish. It's too on the nose. I mean, we get like the intro with Beast where he's talking about... You know, Charles Xavier goes, oh, there's already a mutant here. And he's like, oh, no, he hadn't told his employer that he's a mutant. Oh, you didn't ask, so I didn't tell. Oh, show us your mutant powers, Hank. And he jumps upside down and everyone goes, oh, look at that. Good on you, Hank. And it's just like, it's really corny. It's really cheesy. It happens way too fast. And and there's a lot of examples of, of that some of the dialogue is just awful as as well. Like, this is an actual quote from Beast said to, to Mystique. Beast, by the way, supposedly an actual person with emotions, not a robot. It behooves me to tell you that even if we save the world tomorrow and mutants are accepted into society, my feet in your natural blue form will never be deemed beautiful. It's not how a human being or a mutant talks to someone. Especially That's someone they have a crush talks on. in the comics. Yeah. Well, this ain't the comics, and comics writing doesn't work when said out loud. I mean, some of this stuff makes I'm the juggernaut bitch sound like poetry. It is saved by the cast, and it is saved by the direction. Fassbender, McAvoy, Bacon, Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique, Nicholas Holt as Beast, Rose Byrne as Moira McTaggart, Caleb Landry-Jones, Lucas Till. I mean, they all do really, really well. This is clever casting, and that's something that the whole X-Men franchise has, is really clever casting. They get good people who are right for the role. I have to admit, I do love the, the yellow costumes. Yeah, and, and that's that's the other thing. The direction of it is, is good. The design of the world is very fun. Matthew Vaughan is having a lot of fun in how he is creating the world. The action is all good. I really like the finale with the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think that's very well done. There are thousands of men on those ships, good, honest, innocent men. They're just following orders. I've been at the mercy of men just following orders. Never again. Yeah, but I I feel like I'm, I'm a little confused as to why this movie gets a pass when it has so many of the same problems that Last Stand and, and X-Men Origins has. In some cases, I would argue, worse examples of those problems. Anyways, it's available for streaming on Disney Plus if anyone is interested. The last movie I would have to talk about this week is The Wolverine. It is directed by James Mangold, and it is a Wolverine movie that takes place after X-Men The Last Stand. Wolverine is summoned to Tokyo. There is a very old business tycoon named Ichiro Yoshida, played by Haruhiko Yamanuchi. He's dying. Wolverine saved him from the bombing of Nagasaki back at the end of the Second World War, and he is now dying all these years later. He wants to take Wolverine's healing. He is offering Wolverine the chance to 
pass this healing on and that he would finally be able to live a mortal life and, and die eventually. Wolverine says no, Yoshida dies. But at the funeral, a, a gang of, of Yakuza attack and try and kill Yoshida's granddaughter, Mariko, played by Tao Okamoto. And Wolverine, out of loyalty to the old man, out of just being a decent person, goes to protect her. But his healing has been mysteriously weakened. He is much more vulnerable than he should be. I, I saw this when it came out in cinemas, and I didn't much care for it. I think I was expecting something else, and when I didn't get it, I sort of pushed back against it. I also think that, you know, that was me younger and not as mature and not as willing to look at what the movie is doing below surface level. I liked it a lot more this time. I actually really loved it. It's not a superhero movie. It is a conspiracy thriller by way of a samurai film. The Wolverine development is all really good stuff. This, as I said, is post-Last Stand. He's having these hallucinations, these dreams of Jean Grey. They compare him to a ronin, a samurai without a master, you know, wandering the land. The the idea to take things to Japan is a great idea. The culture and the setting of that makes for such a fascinating place to put Wolverine it into. It looks great. It looks brilliant. And the action is so fantastic as well. Like, the sequence on the top of the bullet train yeah. is outstanding. I love the little... Hop up, smack. Yeah, the the stuff in the, in the snowy village at the end. Some Did you watch the uh, extended cut? Yes, that's much bloodier. Mm. <laughs> I'm a little iffy on the movie's insistence on chucking in a romance with the granddaughter between Wolverine and the granddaughter. I mean, putting aside the fact even that Hugh Jackman is 17 years older than that actress, there is also the fact that Wolverine is. A hundred and hundred and what, hundred and sixty years older than, he's older than that than actress. Anyone that he would meet. Yeah. But like also, he's her grandfather's old war buddy. I mean, come on. It's just weird. <laughs> I think War Buddy is taking it a little too All right. far. But it, it gave me like flashbacks to when Captain America makes out with his ex girlfriend's granddaughter after a funeral. Like <laughs> <laughs> Like, when you start interrogating it, it it feels icky. It's weird. This is possibly my favourite of the X-Men films, simply because of its narrow focus on character, not so much on a broad amount of characters. I love how they do two different versions of Silver Samurai. Silver Samurai was always a character who intrigued me, and I always loved the design and everything, and they, as Harley said, they do two versions, and... They're both the perfect Silver Samurai. I find how Mangold and his team shoot Japan to be very appealing. It looks fantastic. Especially some of the sword fight at Yoshida's house. Mm. With the shadow and everything, the silhouettes. Wolverine pulling the sword out of his chest. I would say that between this and Logan, Mangold is clearly the best director that the series had. Oh, easy, easy. He also has this passion for removing Logan's healing factor. Mm. He seems to despise the idea he can heal from anything. Well, it, it it kind of does make him a deus ex machina in a way. When he's really operating at 100%, he's unstoppable. Yeah, um, but when he does operate at 100% in Mangold's films, 
Yeah. He goes off. It's one of the reasons why Magneto is such an effective villain to pair Wolverine against, because yeah. actually Wolverine's strength with the claws then becomes a weakness. Yeah. In any any case, I, I agree with you. This is much more character-focused. It's much more mature. Hugh Jackman really gets a chance to do some deep emotional acting. He's not just... I mean, he, he's very good in all of the other movies, but, but here he's asked to be internal in a way that he's not uh, in, in the other films. The supporting cast of, of Japanese actors is very good as well. Okamoto is very good. I very much enjoy Hiroyuki Sanada as Mariko's father. He is an actor who I've seen in other, other things like Sunshine. Have you guys ever seen Sunshine? I haven't seen Sunshine. But he is fantastic in yeah. this, particularly the sword fight. I, I kind of want to say we're so close to doing Sunshine as an episode. Don't see it until then. Because okay. I want to talk to, I want you guys to go in fresh. But he's very good in that. He's very good in in a truly batshit crazy sci-fi series, sci-fi the channel series called Helix. I enjoy him a lot. Uh, but- the, the guy who plays the the grandfather Yoshida, all of the old person stuff, that's makeup. Oh yeah, he's only like even now, seven years later, he's like seventy something. Yeah, it's honestly fantastic it is available for streaming on disney plus as are the others if anyone is in australia and interested anyways what about you guys what have you seen this week the first thing we watched is a series that i've been really excited for for quite a long time since i heard they were doing it we watched a new series of the stand the stand being one of my favorite stephen king books and one of the one of the first i actually read of his would you argue that it's his opus oh is certainly among his grandest stories. His magnum opus would have to be the Dark Tower series. I mean, what would you what would you put up against it, really? Like the Stand, the Dark Tower. Um, you could make a case for the Shining, Salem's Lot, it. Carrie, It. Christine. I mean, those are the really big ones. The basic conceit of the Stand is this worldwide pandemic called Captain Trips, which is ba- which basically functions. As a respiratory illness. Hits a little close to home, for sh- I'm sure. It's basically if you got Ebola and the Black Death mm. mushed together, and that's the, the result from it. That kills 99% of the Earth's population. And so with the remaining 1% left, they get split between the forces of light, who follow Ma- Mother Abigail, and the forces of darkness, who follow... The Walking Dude, the Dark Man, Randall Flag. He is also he who walks behind the rose from Children of the Corn. He is from the Dark Tower. Yeah, as Walter Odeem. This is one of, like, the Stephen King villains. The thing I love most about this version is a lot of the cast. You've got James Marsden, my boy, as Stu Redman. You've got Alexander Skarsgård as... Randall Flagg, he's fantastic. You've got Whoopi Goldberg as Mother Abigail. You've got Owen Teague as Harold Lauder, which is perfect for such, like, a creepy character. He looks like death warmed up in so many moments. He's got this really, really great fake smile. The thing about this version of The Stand, however, is they're telling stuff out of order, with a lot of flashbacks, stuff like that. Like to pre-pandemic. Pardon? Like flashbacks to the outbreak. Yes. It's sort of, it goes back and forth. It's so that they can better mirror certain moments together. 
Yeah, it it's context stuff. It doesn't hurt the pacing. It doesn't hurt the pacing for me, as someone who's familiar with the story, uh, having also watched the miniseries yeah, from 1994. I, I, I have seen the miniseries from 1994. It's one of the reasons that I am so excited about this new series, because I enjoyed the 1994 miniseries, but it's kind of like, well, doing the three-hour version of this story... On a 1994 television budget with the technology available then. Five hours. Oh, five hours. The series was five hours. They had to cut corners. They had to cut corners. Both in terms of, like, scale and in terms of cutting some characters. And character development. It is is truly an an epic-sized story that 1994 television just could not achieve. They do some good stuff in that. You have to admit, that version of The Stand has a particular aesthetic... Does does this new one include Don't Fear the Reaper? It does. Okay. At a point... Not where I would have preferred it to be, but it's there. I have so many great needle drops. Do you know the song The Stranger by Billy Joel? Yes. Do you know how it's got that whistling bit at the end? Mm -hmm. You know how in the original miniseries, Don't Fear the Reaper is playing over the shots of the facility? Hmm. Right at the start, they show you how the disease got out at the end of the first episode with that whistling bit from The Stranger. chilling and you can see randall flag's foot wedging a door open so the guy can run out Mm. which is such a great touch uh makes him more directly responsible i love this a couple of people's acting choices are not great but i have to give a lot of credit to the guy who plays tom cullen in this brad william henke for the people who haven't read or watched the stand before tom cullen is developmentally challenged he has a disability that means he takes a bit longer to get to places, get to, get to ideas. He's not stupid in any way, he just takes a bit of time to get there. The portrayal in this is so, so respectful. It's such a great performance because it emphasizes how sad it is for a character like that to be in a situation like this. Someone who's so kind and patient with people being thrown into the apocalypse. They do a great job at showing the difference between the people who go with Abigail and the people who go with Flag. Like, you've got Catherine McNamara as Julie Laurie, who, her introduction into the show is fantastic, showing you exactly what kind of person, what kind of character she is. Foul-mouthed, mean, vicious, ableist, great performance, Nat Wolf as Lloyd Henry. Great performance. And I know that some people have had issues with it, but I actually like Ezra Miller's performance as Trash Can Man. He's going to the hilt. He's on a, just another level. And some people have pointed it out as making fun, but I don't think that's quite 
what's happening. I feel like he's taking Trash Can Man in a direction where it's extreme. Oh yeah. But here's the here's the thing too. Trash Can Man was always one of the more extreme sort of absurd characters. Frankly, the character of Trash Can Man doesn't merge well with a lot of the other characters, like Harold or Stu no. or Franny. He doesn't really have an internal life, no. so to speak. He's a very external it, it, character. This is a great series. It is on Amazon Prime in Australia and CBS All Access in the US. should be noted that it's also a miniseries. This is also a miniseries. I also watched a show called Truth Seekers. It is basically Nick Frost, Ghost Hunter. Basically, Nick Frost is playing a character who works at a internet provider who is a repairman. He goes out to fix people's internet. But on the side, he's also got a YouTube channel where he goes to haunted places and tries to capture evidence of the supernatural. This show has a great sense of humor, but also this prevailing atmosphere of mystery and pathos. And dread, too. Like, some of the... Stuff that gets implied about the fate of these spirits is honestly disturbing. So it mixes tones. It mixes tones very well. The second episode, especially, uh, how they deal with the supernatural caused for a number station. You know those stations from World War Two that used to send out numbers and signals and stuff, block signals and stuff, in an attempt to confuse the Germans during the raids. The way they deal with that situation and the source of that situation is really, really emotional and really, really moving. I almost cried because of how well they handled that. John, you totally need to finish that episode. Because okay. I feel that if you do, you'll be as into the show as I am now. But that's all right. I currently have to say about that show. That's on Amazon Prime as well, I believe. We also started the second season of Batwoman. Now, due to Ruby Rose's exit, they decided not to recast the character of Kay Kane. They decided to bring in an original character called Ryan Wilder, played by Javicia Leslie. And a lot of people were concerned about how that would work if they would erase the character of Kate completely, but that didn't happen. Kate's disappearance plays a huge part into where a lot of the characters are at at this point. It it doesn't feel like a fresh start. It feels like an honest continuation of the first season. Yeah. And when I've spoke when I talked about the first season when that started, I really adore the show. It is fantastic. They've got a decent budget, and the cool thing about this is we got a chance to see what that continuity's Bruce Wayne looks like, but not see Bruce. So yeah. that was quite interesting. We see the Batmobile. Does it seem like Ruby Rose might be back at all in, in like, a I, guest capacity to properly... I think the guest capacity is certainly likely. There's been no indication of it so far, but they've said Kate Kane is missing, not dead. Okay. So it could be, like, an ongoing storyline that eventually gets resolved with, like, a... Oh, yeah, this is this is part of the main plot. What I would want them to do is give her a two-episode, I guess character arc this seems like the, the like the way that if i had to make a prediction like they would have that running in the background all of season two and she'd show up in the last couple of episodes yeah. that would make a lot of sense yeah because there's a lot of stuff with kate kane that is unfinished the most interesting thing to me about the second season barring a lot of the characters responses and the actors handle it very very well is the character yeah. of ryan wilder kate kane as you know the cousin to bruce wayne as the daughter of the leader of the crows 
had a lot of privilege. She had the opportunity to get away with a lot of stuff that other people wouldn't. She had money. Her family was accepting of her sexuality. So she had a lot of opportunities. Whereas Ryan Wilder is someone whose father died before she was born, whose mother died in childbirth, whose foster mother, most recent foster mother that she really adored, was killed by Dallas and Wonderland gang. She's been in prison for a crime she didn't commit. And it's just going to... The second season's just going to address that inequality that still exists nowadays, especially towards the black community, especially those who have those who are ex-cons and how unfair the system can be. I'm super excited to see the rest of it because the showrunners have said that one of the main villains will be Black Mask, which I'm super excited to see what they do with because you got a lot of opportunities when designing the mask and adapting the character so yeah i'm super excited for it john what about you so first thing i want to talk about is we've started watching the fifth season of riverdale and this is going to be an interesting season because they're finishing off the plot from the previous season season four because of covid and everything a lot of the cw shows have had to do that and there's going to be a five-year time jump after, I'm assuming, the third or fourth episode, which is going to put characters in an... In- I can't wait to see it. I love this show. This first episode moved very quickly in getting plot threads. No, I don't think many plot threads finished, but they definitely moved towards a fever pitch. Yeah, and yeah, I just love this show so much. We also watched Soul, a film by Peter Doctor. It's... On the new Pixar film, it follows Joe. He's a middle school band teacher voiced by Jamie Foxx. He doesn't want to be teaching middle school band. He wants to be out there playing and... He wants to be a famous jazz musician. He wants to be a famous jazz musician. And he finally gets a chance to play with Dorothea Williams, played by Angela Bassett. This is a big break. He's super excited, but he falls it down a manhole. <laughs> he ends up in the great beyond he doesn't want to be dead so he breaks through the fabric keeping him from returning to his body and ends up in the great before where he meets a soul called 22 voiced by tina fey because joe isn't meant to be there the counselors who are these wire string creatures assume that he's a mentor meant to be there to give new souls their spark, their personality, their... Inspire them towards life. So he is paired with 22. The 22nd soul in all of existence. It has had all of the mentors you could imagine. Aristotle, Mother Teresa, Beethoven, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, and none of them have been able to give her that spark, help her complete her earth badge so that she can go down and join the land of the living do a whole lot of amusing circumstances 22 eventually gets stuck on earth in joe's body and joe gets stuck in a therapy cat's body so this is a gorgeous film visually spiritually sonically 
it's just fantastic. You've got a great cast here. Jamie Foxx, Tina Fey, Graham Norton as a character called Moonwind. You've got Rachel House as a character called Terry. It it's a it's one of the counselors, but Terry's purpose is to count every soul that enters the Great Beyond. But the count is yeah. now off. So he has to seek down yeah. Joe to rip the soul out of his body and yeet it into the Great it's, Beyond. Terry is played by Rachel House, and she is fantastic in this. She has got so much character and has a fantastic scene with David Diggs, who plays a character called Paul from Joe's Life. Brilliant scene. You've also got the Jerry's, who are voiced by Alice Braga, Richard Ayoade, Wes Studi, and... A few other... Like, this is a very beautiful movie. It is. It's visually astonishing. The lighting, the quality of the textures and the animation. At some points with the lighting the way it is, sometimes it looks photorealistic. Yeah. And it's got a great score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and John Batiste, who listeners might recognize as the band leader for the Stephen Colbert show. And... He gives the jazz side of things, because he's a prolific jazz musician in his own right. Fantastic pianist. He wrote some jazz score for the film. He arranged some jazz standards so that they could better fit in with the tone of the film, and worked closely with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross in order to create a cohesive sonic palette across the film, because he handles all of the music focused on jazz and Joe's real life on Earth, whereas Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross create the ambient soundscapes and musical language of the great beyond and the great before and the U Seminar, which is the place where all of the souls learn about Earth and who they're going to become. And it's got this really fantastic vibe of a workplace introductory video kind of music and it is brilliant this film is just beautiful and has a lot to say about life on earth how a purpose isn't the same as what your spark is it's about it's a film about appreciating even the small moments in your life it's about Finding a reason to live that isn't just the thing that you're passionate about. And in that sense, it really captures a a very universal message. One of the interesting bits of trivia about the film is there's a part of the credits on a lot of Pixar films called the production babies, which are the babies that are born during the production of the films because Pixar movies take a long time to finish. And in fact, this film finished its last seven weeks of production in quarantine in the animators' homes in San Francisco. And in this part of the credits, the production babies are called Recent Youth Seminar Graduates, which I think is pretty hilarious in the context. Is this film... What do you know of this film? Only the trailer, because it hasn't come to cinemas, so I don't know. I'll probably put it on the list when it comes time to assessing 2020 movies, but 
I have. I would have to like go and rewatch trailers, probably. But it's along the lines of Inside Out. Yeah, it's very Inside Out in tone. It didn't hit yeah. me as hard, but then again, Inside Out hit me with the power of a freight train. But again, you knew I was going to like this. The scores by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, and they can't really do anything wrong, in my opinion. I still have to watch Mank, which they also did the score for the new David Fincher film. But I will get around to that because I get the feeling that it's probably going to be on my best of the year list. So now we're going to play for you the trailer to X-Men Days of Future Past. What's the last thing you remember? was the theatrical trailer for X-Men Days of Future Past. It is a superhero film directed by Brian Singer, and it begins in a dystopian future where a line of military robots called Sentinels have driven mutants to the brink of extinction. Desperate, what remains of the X-Men gather in an ancient temple in the Chinese mountains to execute one final Hail Mary pass, led by a now-allied Professor Charles Xavier, played by Patrick Stewart, Peace Stew, and Magneto, played by Ian McKellen. The X-Men plan to use the powers of Kitty Pride, played by Elliot Page, to undo their decimation. Possessing the power to send a person's contemporary consciousness back in time into their younger body, Kitty will transport the immortal Wolverine, played by Hugh Jackman, back to 1973. There he must gather the support of the younger, still feuding Professor X, played by James McAvoy, and Magneto, played by Michael Fassbender, and track down and stop the rogue shapeshifter Mystique, played by Jennifer Lawrence, 
whose assassination of a government official at the 1973 Paris Peace Accords triggered the production of the Sentinels in the first place. So before we get too deep into this, why don't we all go around and each give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of X-Men Days of Future Past. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Just let me cue you up. 30 seconds. 3, 2, 1, go. I think this is a really interesting bridge between the two timelines. And you get a lot of really great character moments from both of them. The majority of the character moments happening for the younger cast, though. I really enjoy the fact that you've got Wolverine, you know, working with both generations of these characters. And I like how Magneto turns everything to his own advantage by the end. That's just a very Magneto thing to do. Here we go. Right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Now, I find that this is... I love this story because it's one of the most interesting stories in the comics, The Days of Future Past, where the bad future run by the Sentinels is. I love the idea of the Sentinels. They're a great uh, sort of disposable, destroyable villain, uh, but also represent the persecution against the mutants. Yeah, it's a great story. Great movie, too. The road cut's particularly interesting. All right, just in time. You got me queued up, John? Hold on a second. 30 seconds. Go. This is my favorite of the whole franchise. I think it's a really great story. It's large in scope. It bridges the two casts together in a really interesting way. I think watching the road cut especially, it works so well as a finale to the whole franchise that I kind of wish that it had been. But we will get into that when we go into it. I think there are a lot of very clever echoes and callbacks that really bring things to a conclusion that they then Stop. have to go and make more movies and ruin. So let's start off with something that we had a brief discussion about off air, which is probably worth getting about the getting out of the way as quickly as we can, which is the question of how the hell is the Patrick Stewart iteration of Charles Xavier still alive in this movie? He got disintegrated in X-Men 3. He was turned to dust by Dark Phoenix in X-Men 3. There was a post credit scene at the end of X-Men 3 in which a comatose man, a brain-dead man who had been briefly seen earlier on in the movie in a, a clip that Moira McTaggart had sent Xavier to use as a teaching tool. We saw him briefly there. But there is a post credit scene where that man wakes up and starts speaking in Patrick Stewart's voice. So that's all the explanation that we get. Patrick Stewart just turns up in the post credit scene of The Wolverine. He's in the wheelchair again. He looks like Patrick Stewart. All we get is, you're not the only one with gifts, when Logan asks him what the hell is happening. Like, hold on. So we're meant to assume that the body that Xavier body hopped into also has the power of telepathy. Yes. Or are we saying that it's Xavier's consciousness that has the power of telepathy? No, no, because in, in the X-Men movies, they explicitly make clear these are biological processes. These are genetic processes. Sure, but like memory and personality are physical biological processes as well. You take out like, it's in the brain. You take out a portion of the brain, you lose parts of that. Okay. So if he's coming into this body with the personality of Xavier and his memories, then it goes to, sh then it would imply that at, at the very least, the person whose body he has come to inhabit, he has overwritten those parts of his mind with his own. 
Well, there's that interesting story back from, I think it was the 40s, where a guy was working on the railroad in America, and something flew off of a train, and a giant iron rod just went right through his skull. He survived, but it took out a portion of his brain, and he his personality completely changed. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, like, that's clearly, that's a physical thing, that the personality exists within the brain and within the way that the brain interacts with it. We don't know very much about the brain, but, like, it's clear from examples that, you, like you just said, John, that it, it is something physically within the brain, that if you remove that part of the brain, then the personality goes or the memory goes or, like, that's how pe- when people get lobotomized, they have parts of their brain taken out and it, it changes them, which would imply I'm... This may shock you, I'm not a medical doctor, but I it would seem to imply to me that for Xavier in Days of Future Past to have the memories, the personality, he can't just have shifted his soul over into this other guy's body. He needs to have overwritten that guy's brain with his own. But, like, how long has he had this plan? How long has he had access to this individual? Has he been slowly editing it, the dude's brain over a period of time in sort of like a black mirror cookies situation or did he just throw his mind into the sky the moment before he's about to get disintegrated has he kidnapped killed and paralyzed their universe's version of patrick stewart (laughs) because that would be messed up he just does the dirty to peace dude just just halfway through a production of Waiting for Godot with their version of Ian McKellen, who depressingly looks like the mutant terrorist Magneto. <laughs> Patrick Stewart, in their world, just disappears. All right. This is from an article from denofgeek.com. Professor X was memorably vaporized by an out-of-control Jean Grey during the events of X-Men The Last Stand. The film did introduce a get-out-of-claws a get-out clause for this, casually mentioning the idea of a psychic transferring their mind into a comatose man on life support, and then strongly hinting, if not outright revealing in a post credit sequence, that Xavier had done exactly this. So that explains why he's not dead, but it doesn't explain why he's still Patrick Stewart. Well, on the commentary for the DVD of X-Men The Last Stand, one of the writers suggests that the brain-dead man is Xavier's identical twin brother who was born without a consciousness. If Xavier transferred his mind into that body, that leaves Patrick Stewart free to reprise his role in the next film. What this doesn't explain is why Professor X needs a hover chair in the days of future past future if he's not in his original paralysed body. Maybe he's just lazy. (laughs) I mean, that's one way of putting it. Also, it also doesn't explain the transference of the psychic ability. As we said, it's biological, not any sort of magic or whatnot. But given that he's a telepath, could it perhaps be that it is in the brain? Yeah, but like we said, a lot of stuff to do with the brain is a physical process, so... It just doesn't... It's something in their DNA. It's something in their DNA which is spread throughout their body. That's the point of the mutants. Okay, okay, maybe if they are twins, and now this isn't the case with a lot of twins in the X-Men comic books. What we're all really dancing around here is, does John have a secret plan to one day hijack Harley's body when his own gives out? I mean... I wouldn't put it past him. No, no, that's foolish. No, no, no. That's my plan. 
<laughs> we can both have that plan, Harley. It's just a race of who gets there first. Yeah. yeah. And, I'm a you lot know, further along. I can't say that it's never crossed my mind, but I don't have the ability to do this. The technology hasn't quite caught up with the kind of sort of bullshit that exists in the X-Men universe that would allow this to happen. And why couldn't Jean have done that then? Well, she says kill me at the end. Presumably she doesn't want to. Fair enough. She might also not even know about it. She might not have an identical twin sister somewhere in a a bed. Not every telepath gets that get out of jail free card. She might not have a, a comatose sibling that she can just body hop into. It's it's also kind of messed up though in a, like an ethical sense. Yeah, I you know what I get the feeling that they really did not intend to <laughs> no. go in the direction that they went no. in. That when they wrote that in two thousand and six, they were not thinking of something eight years from now they were going to do a Days of Future Past storyline. They were thinking more like, well, three years from now when we do X Men Four, that's going to be part of the plot. Mm. It's, it's a bullshit reason. Yeah, it's just that the continuity of the X-Men franchise, in all iterations of it, is a tangled nightmare of contradictions and continuity snarls. Yeah. Well, that- the other thing is, it also implies that the mutant cure at the end of number three is only a temporary thing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, because Magneto clearly has his powers back. So does Rogue. So does Rogue. So... There's a whole lot of stuff that was sort of in the ending to number three that was undone. Yeah. Yeah. But that that number three pretty much undid itself mm. in its last moments. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I think this is probably the place to talk about some of the continuity problems that the X-Men franchise has. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, this isn't like the Marvel Cinematic Universe where where Kevin Feige has got like this this big, you know... I'm chasing a serial killer kind of whiteboard with, you know, <laughs> tacks and strings yeah. connecting things where he's planned it all out in chasing advance. Chasing a serial killer? Or does he have the intensity of planning of a serial killer? <laughs> this isn't like that, where he has everything planned out in advance. He knows what movies are going to come out. Well, I think it's up through 2028, he says, that he has Marvel movies planned at this moment. X-Men is not that. X-Men is like... The version of that, except it's scrawled on the back of a napkin in crayon. At the very least, at the very least, Simon Kinberg being like, look, everything's got to be connected. We've got to try. Like, he's trying. God bless him. God bless him for trying. I like Simon Kinberg. He tries so hard. And it wasn't Days of Future Past that originally connected the, the original cast to the new cast. It was First Class. Hugh Jackman turns up in that movie, very briefly, but yeah. it's there. Yeah. It is clearly established already that this is the same continuity. Professor X lives in the same house that the prof- yeah. that the Patrick Stewart one does. It's also the same house from Kingsman. Yeah. They they redo, they reuse the footage of young Magneto in Auschwitz from the first movie to open first class with. Gotta admit, that was seamless too. Mm. So... This isn't a retcon that they're trying to link it. It's always been intentional that it is linked. It's just kind of crazy when you stop to think about it. Because, all right, let's let's run through this. Okay, we've got the Liev Schreiber Sabretooth thing that we talked about last week. We've got the Jennifer Lawrence Mystique connection. How does that work with the Re- Rebecca Romaine thing? Apparently, Patrick Stewart and Rebecca Romaine were like adopted siblings they never really had a scene together in any of the no, movies. No, they didn't. So it, you can kind Maybe of... Maybe it's because, like, after she killed Trask... He never brings it up. 
she's not nearly as chatty as Rebecca no. Romaine as she is as, as Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, they, they do ground it in first class. There's like a throwaway line in first class that Mystique has something in her genome that she ages at half the rate of mm. a regular person. So that would explain why when Rebecca Romaine comes on the scene, she only looks a little bit older than than Jennifer Lawrence, even yeah. when she's cured at the in in three and then turns back into thirty something year old Rebecca Romaine. So so there's that out there, and you can it's again one of the saber tooth things where it doesn't directly contradict itself. No. It's just a bit iffy. You've got yeah. to kind of squint and pretend that it all makes yeah. sense. But Xavier being back, Xavier in X Men Origins Wolverine standing in nineteen seventy something when um. We learn that he has been paralyzed in 62, I suppose. Well, you can't even argue that he's taking the serum again in that because he uses telepathy in that scene. Mm, mm. Maybe he's just projecting his image. The opening scene in X-Men The Last Stand where he and Magneto come to visit Jean Grey. Yeah, Professor X in the hat. Yeah, they are they are long separated at that point. And Charles got everything in the divorce. <laughs> you got the house, you got the kids. I mean, Magneto took, you know, Mystique, but... There's even just continuity problems between the Wolverine and this. Logan's got metal claws back in this. He lost them at the end of, of the Wolverine. He had them cut off by the Silver Samurai and the bones... Maybe Magneto restored the adamantium. Which would have been horrific. Giving him a hand, you know. And you, you know what? That brings me to something else. I would have really loved it if this was a two-part story. Yeah. If you had one movie that was The Rise of the Sentinels and yeah. was the end of civilization, basically. And you would have gotten more with Trask. Well, no, you wouldn't because he's dead. Oh, yeah. So you, But you have the original cast in sort of the bombed-out post-apocalyptic future, and you have the cliffhanger be Wolverine coming, going back in time, and then Days yeah. of Future Past would just play the same. But that would have been really interesting. I would have liked to see more of that. But even after they reset the continuity, okay, so so we agree, right, that they reset the continuity at the end of Days of Future Past? Absolutely. Yes. That X-Men 1, 2, and 3 never happen in the continuity following... Well, Never happened that way. Yes. So so it would go X-Men Origins Wolverine, X-Men, well, X-Men Origins Wolverine up to 1973, all of the original stuff with him and Sabretooth fighting in all the wars and yeah. things. That all happens. First class still happens. The stuff with Apocalypse at the beginning of Apocalypse, then that. All of that stuff is still there, but the X-Men 1, 2, 3, the Wolverine... The post-1973 segments of X-Men Origins Wolverine and the future segments of Days of Future Past all no longer happen after the conclusion of Days of Future Past. But it also throws us into two separate timelines as well, mm, going forward. I don't forward. think it does. It does. Because there's the Dark Phoenix stuff, then there's the continuation off from Days of Future Past into Logan. That's not... No, it isn't. The Sentinels have turned on humanity in Days of Future Past. They've started... No, no, at the end, after the ending. at the uh, After Wolverine changes the timeline, that story continues on into Logan. Yeah, but that's now taking place in the same continuity. The stuff with Wolverine at the end is now taking place in the same continuity as... Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. Like Kitty Pride explicitly says in... I don't know if it's in the theatrical cut, but in the road cut, or well, someone says that 
it's not going to take hold until you come back. And you're the only one who's going to have a memory of the original timeline. You're, you're thinking of this in terms of the, the end game t- form of time travel. When I would posit that everything in this movie points toward it being back to the future time travel, where change in the past just affects the present. There's no branching off of the timelines or anything. What hap- what gets erased in the past, like this, what we're really getting into here is the fundamental paradox at the heart of time travel, which yeah. is if you change things, then inevitably you eventually change the events that led to the time travel in the first place. So how does that happen? It creates a loop in the continuity that can't be resolved. It's just a paradox. It's the wrong kind of conversation to get into with someone with OCD and asperges. <laughs> but we still agree that the story ends tragically. Yeah. Oh, with yes. Logan. Yes. Like, there is no happy ending. Yeah, that, that, that's the whole conclusion of um of the X-Men franchise. I'd like, okay, so we start, this is how I see things going, right? We start off with, okay, the, the prologue of, of Apocalypse years later, Origins, First Class, X-Men 1, X-Men 2, X-Men 3, The Wolverine, Days of Future Past. Then, in Days of Future Past, they jump back to between First Class and Origins Wolverine. They change events there. That wipes everything in the future, post-73, out of existence. So when Wolverine jumps back into 2014 or wherever it is, he's experiencing the new timeline that has gone Apocalypse, Dark Phoenix, etc. And then on from that goes into Logan. And your mutants. So that is the depressing end to the Fox x-men saga and everyone is dead who who knows who gives a shit who gives a shit well deadpool's just weird with the continuity anyway it appears to be taking place in the present day and yet the young cast is seen in a cameo in the in the second one yeah Mm. but then again deadpool seems to be aware of the fact that there are multiple actors playing professor xavier so what do you do with that and of course then because they cancelled the series when Disney got a hold of it, Dark Phoenix creates a bit of a problem because Jean Grey is gone at the end of Dark Phoenix, presumably to have been brought back in some future movie. But as it stands, somehow she needs to have come back from the time that she disappeared in 1992 to the time that she appears in the ending of Days of Future Past. Mm. And then, of course, you when you when you get into the fact that, that like the continuity is just so messed up, even after they reset it, that they're just like, oh yeah, Days of uh, Dark Phoenix takes place thirty years after First Class. James McAvoy, he's thirty years older than he was in First Class. He's almost sixty in that movie. Like, no, no, he's like barely past thirty. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, I'm sure this has been riveting for for anyone who's not seen these movies. But cert- it is certainly the most complicated live action superhero timeline. Yeah, because it was like tied together with bubblegum and duct tape, really. Like yeah. they they came up with it on the fly. Like the continuity is a total mess. This is how we 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 mentioned last week how this was really the first time that these superhero movies, how this kind of storytelling really kick started. So. X-Men was making it up as it goes along and everything else, the MCU, the DCEU, the Arrowverse, they get to benefit from all the stuff that oh, we've yeah. learned in the interim. The the X-Men did it by, by trial and error. It's like bull in a china shop. It really is. Um, I, I do have to say, my favourite parts of this movie are the Days of Future Past things. Me too. Not just because that's, that's the cast that I prefer, but because that post-apocalyptic future is so fascinating. 
I, to me. I, I, I love watching the, the sort of stories like after the apocalypse of superheroes. Mm. Um, that's what interests me. Uh, we watched the Justice League Dark Apocalypse War at one point, and that's basically everything's gone terribly for those characters, and that's a very compelling setting. It's mm. why I'm so interested in the Nightmare timeline for the DCEU. That's why that's such an interesting idea for me. I like seeing superheroes in that sort of bombed-out wasteland Push to the uh, edge setting. of their ethics. Flashpoint Paradox, I hope that that is faithful enough that that's what we mm. get there. But Absolutely, but it's such an interesting... Like Joker, Martha Wayne, come on, give it to me. <laughs> I gotta see it, man. Oh, uh, you... you uh, uh, uh. Anyway, so there's something so... The, the interesting about the Days of Future Past thing is it's really a we all have to pull together and survive mm. sort of thing. I also like some of the mutants that they introduce in that bit, like Bishop, Warpath, Blink. Blink. You got that really cool design for Iceman with the coat and everything. Those fight scenes with those new mutants are fantastic as well. Yeah. Like the way that all of their powers intermingle with each other and the way that they're, they're used with each other is brilliant. We mentioned last week that we felt that when Brian Singer went to direct action scenes in the first movie, he was out of his element. But here, what he's doing in, in Days of Future Past is actually really, really clever use of the powers of all of these mm. uh, different mutants, of the of the ways that they interact with each other. It's really well done. Absolutely. And you see them die a lot. Mm. You see them lose mm. to the Sentinels. That one of the ways that they have been keeping out of trouble is that Kitty Pride has been using her powers that when the Sentinels attack, she sends one of them back a couple of days earlier to warn themselves so that then they were never there in the first place. Yeah. Mm. Which which reinforces my interpretation of the kind of time travel it is, Harley, because you see them disappear. Uh, I'm just used to your multiple timelines sort of thing. I mean, I, mean I, I love that stuff. That's why I wanted that whole movie of the build-up to it, of the, of the post-apocalyptic. And I love the whole uh, thing with the Sentinels, how they take the powers of the mutants they kill. Like, you can see that one of them has the Lady Deathstroke claws. Deathstrike. La Lady, Lady Deathstrike. Deathstrike. Uh, you got one of them who becomes all covered in rock or whatever, and clearly they've taken the power from Darwin. You've got Killing Iceman, Colossus. One of them, t one of them turns into diamonds like Emma Frost. Yeah, mm. and that's all really cool. You get a lot of little bits of oh, that person's power, oh, that person's power. Colossus gets ripped in half during the final sort of skirmish. On it's really brutal. Mm. But I have to say the the Kitty Pride send the consciousness back in time power. <laughs> that's bullshit. That that's an ass pull. Yeah, that's the they sort of had had written themselves into a corner via the fact that they had cast Elliot Page when they were making mm. The Last Stand and Elliot Page was just far too young to have been alive in nineteen seventy three. Yeah. Mm. So they couldn't use Kitty Pride to cross over the two casts. No. No like and and Kitty Pride's powers just don't work like that. How how did she go back in the comics? I'm not sure how. Okay. There is a prose novelization of the original comic arc, by the way. Yes, there is. But it's it's an interesting like way to adapt the power, but it just doesn't mesh with the, you know, being able to walk through stuff power. 
There's there's a continuity of power that just doesn't make sense. I can kind of draw a kind of a messy continuity there that her her power to transcend physical space that she might also have the power to mentally transcend time. And because when she's touching someone, she can move through solid objects with them, it makes sense that she would be able to move someone through time. And, you know, we didn't see enough of her exercising her powers. Like, it's like, given that we only really spend a lot of time with her in The Last Stand, it's not totally uh, totally unreasonable for, yeah. in this specific film universe, for her to have had that in her back pocket, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Although, you know, she really just was like, eh, I'll let Xavier get turned to ash. Yeah. I'm not going to do anything about that. <laughs> Perhaps a lot of warning would be helpful <laughs> to, like, save Jean Grey. <laughs> This is the problem with giving anyone time to yeah. powers. It's the problem with Superman just reversing the world, you know? It's like, well, why wouldn't he just do that every time, you know? Yeah. When he stubs his toe, why didn't he just fly back so oh, he's not my, in pain My anymore? issue is not the power being present. It's the fact that the power doesn't make sense for the character. You can always find another mutant that can do that. But you but you lose out on the, the really great drama and really fantastic performance from Elliot Page. Mm. Yeah. Let's let's just say that the powers make sense for this iteration of Kitty Pryde. Yeah, it, it's a trade-off that was necessary to make. And something fantastic about the Rogue cut is that it restores Rogue's presence in this story. Speaking of, they bring everyone back. I mean, this is yeah. a fantastic cast. Everybody is back from um, from the the original cast, including, like, Colossus. They get the actor, Daniel yeah. Cudmore, from X-Men 2 and X-Men 3 back, including in first class. You still get Lucas Till turning up for that, that cameo as Havoc at yeah. the beginning. He was he had to go off and be MacGyver on CBS. So, mm. actually, and- that was later. That was, I think, why he was, spoiler alert, killed off in Apocalypse. But And, and then you get the um those files in Trask's office of... The bodies of Banshee, Azazel, Angel. and Angel. It's like, seeing that, because that part wasn't in that- No, it was. Theatrical. It was. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it must have just been a while since I've seen- And it's part of Magneto's big, I, how dare you speech to Charles, yeah, where he yeah. says, all of the people that have died. You abandoned me! You took her away, and you abandoned me! Angel. Azazel. Emma, Banshee, mutant brothers and sisters, all dead. Countless others, experimented on, butchered. Eric, where were you, Charles? We were supposed to protect them. Where were you when your own people needed you? Hiding. You and Hank, pretending to be something you're not. Eric. You abandoned us all. Azazel died. Why should... Everyone's favourite, Azazel. Why should Xavier feel anything about that guy dying? <laughs> Dude was a little demon. If I was if I was Xavier, I'd be like, whatever. Yeah, Banshee, Angel. I feel sorry about that. But Azazel, the unrepentant murderer, he tried to kill me. And it's really cool in the Days of Future Past segments to see Magneto on side. Yeah. Mm. To see how much he regrets the past. This seems the best way, the best, maybe the best point to get into it, which is 
I think this should have that this was a really good opportunity to end the X Men franchise. Mm. Oh yeah. I think if this had been the last X Men movie, we would be talking about what a really lovely, neat little bow it wrapped up with. But no, we have to go screw everything up. We have to go and do Apocalypse and Jean's beloved Dark Phoenix. And And as much as I love Logan, it ends it on a very dour note. Yes, it does. New Mutants ends it. No, I mean the the timeline. Yeah. So, and I, I think that the rogue cut specifically of Days of Future Past, if you look at that as a finale to the whole thing, it works so, so beautifully. Oh, yeah. And oh, I yeah. think you only need to change one thing. You need to have the Fassbender version of Magneto die in the 70s, and then you call it. because. So, so here's the thing. There's already a lot of echoes of previous films going on here. Their plan when they go and get Rogue is the same plan that Magneto had in the first movie. Yeah. When, when uh, Magneto says in the first movie, I don't think I can stop them all, he can't. He's hit. It's, it's a repeat of that same moment. Mm. This time, all of the guns, in this case, shrapnel, actually do blow, go off. He can't stop them all. Yeah. You know? Or there's the, there is the way that he lifts up the X-Jet and the way that he does in X2. Like, there's a lot of, of callbacks to what's going on where it really feels like it's, it's rhyming yeah. with what's gone before. So if you, if you pitch it that way, then, the the and they've already they're already doing it to a certain extent, especially in the road cut. They're intercutting the attack on the Pentagon by Magneto to get his helmet back with Magneto and Iceman's attack on the X Mansion to get Rogue back. Yeah, they're drawing the parallel between how different these characters and, are. And the fact it's Magneto saving Rogue, yeah, at all like that's such a beautiful sort of thing you'll also get Iceman sacrificing himself and then at the end you you get the intercutting of magneto in the past attacking everyone while magneto in the present is sac- has sacrificed himself and is and is while the past magneto is using his powers to attack the u.s government the future magneto is using his powers to block yeah. the entrance so not only that like magneto in the past is using sentinels to attack people whereas in the future he's protecting people from sentinels. yes exactly so there's all of this rhyming stuff that is specifically around the magneto character and his relationship with professor x their war of ideologies that in the future ian mckellen's magneto is buddies again with professor x and is deeply regret he he is xavier's final convert yeah. Like, mm. he has finally come to the realization that actually he was right the whole time. And he is actually, and he, he is the one that in the, in the, in the, this is again in the road cut only, when the other X-Men say, you're asking us to take the risk. Because if we go back and we change the timeline, we might never be born. We, I'm, we not, might not make, exist the way that we, we are. And it's Magneto who says, yes, we're asking you to take the risk to, save everyone and i think that that's that's a really if you're looking at it as a finale if you're intending it as a final movie it would have been a really again a beautiful rhyme to have that that scene of him and xavier doing you know all these years wasted fighting each other charles to get a precious few of them back sentinels bust in every you know they're all about to die and then back in the past raven shoots magneto and kills him Mm. 
doesn't have to kill him right away. He can like splutter and have his his last moment with the McAvoy version of Xavier, but that he die. They could have mirrored the lines like to have precious few of those moments back, and to have that be the the ultimate redemption arc of the McKellen Magneto that he. As he, as he mentions to them earlier on, that he takes that risk, that he is Xavier's final convert, and that his the conclusion of his story is him undoing his own dark history. No, no, I, I, get, I get that, but it also puts too much of that price on the Fassbender one. You're kind of not with Fassbender anymore because he's doing something which the McKellen Magneto never did, which is drop a stadium and, around Richard Nixon and try and kill him. <laughs> like- no, no, I get that, but it's like... While that would redeem Magneto, I think he was redeemed perfectly well. The McKellen one was redeemed perfectly well already. I'm I'm also thinking in the terms of the way it works with Mystique. It completes Mystique's transformation into a tragic anti-hero. No, I get that, but without Magneto, how does X1 and X2 happen? It doesn't. You don't need it to happen. You just assume so that... there's no like, brotherhood. There's no brotherhood. Or if there is a brotherhood, it's led by Toad of all people. This is why I'm saying, like, this. you'd have to stop there if you did this. You couldn't have Apocalypse yeah. or Logan or any of this. You'd have to stop there. I see the benefits, like, of that. I see the point of that. But I don't think Fassabender's Magneto earned that death. It, it doesn't fit for hi- him. It. I know, but, like, you're, you're looking at Magneto, and, and I don't blame you for this because it is because of the way that the continuities tended to go. It's almost like two series running along and crossing over in this one movie. But if you're looking at the Magneto character, not as the Fassbender Magneto and not as the McKellen Magneto, but you're just looking at it as the one character of Magneto. No, no, what, I'm, what I'm saying is the actions taken place by Magneto in Days of Future Past, the... the the past version of himself. Yeah. That sort of redemption arc doesn't gel with that those actions taken by him back then. Right. I know, but the re- the redemptive actions are the one being taken by the McKellen, but the by the the future version. No, no, I get that, but what I'm trying to get at is You're saying he doesn't need that kind of redemption then. He hasn't earned it. No, what I'm saying is to have that moment where he dies in that in the past, it doesn't I think you just have to restructure a lot of what Magneto in the past does. Like, thematically thematically speaking, for his character. Look, anyway, we're getting too into the weeds with that idea. I think it would have helped Magneto's plot not be this... Just a repeat of the same shit in Apocalypse Mm. and Dark Phoenix, which, let's face it, Magneto didn't need to be in those films. Magneto doesn't even turn up until an hour into Dark Phoenix. Exactly. I like him being there, but it's the same thing that he's done in the past three films, where he's like, I'm going to work with Charles. No one cares, Charles. Kind of thing. <laughs> it, it's it's the same shit over and over again. It's good shit, but it's the same shit. I think, let's, we've talked about, you know, the days of future past, the future with the Sentinels and everything, but I I would like to lead a discussion about the characters as they were in the past and all of the stuff that happens there, because that's the bulk of the film. It's an interesting place where we come in and see Charles in this movie. He's sort of gone into his Jim Morrison, long hair, heroin addict kind of. In first class, he is Austin Powers. In yes. this one, he's Jim Morrison. And then by the time you get to Dark Phoenix, he's Dr. Evil. 
Sure. It's all I could think about, seeing McAvoy with a shaved head in Apocalypse. Yeah, baby. In, and in Dark Phoenix was like, he looks so much like Mike Myers in Austin Powers as Dr. Evil. He looks like the young Dr. Evil in Goldmember. <laughs> oh, no, the kid in X3 looks like the young Dr. Evil in Goldmember. <laughs> he actually does. But it's it's an interesting place to put Xavier. He's completely lost hope. He's in the mansion. He's depressed. Beast has stuck around because what else is he going to do? The draft happened. Took teachers and students. Yeah, so he's locked himself away from his powers by using a drug that gives him his legs back, but takes away his mutation. How does that work? Who knows? X-Men. And he just can't, he just doesn't want to hear the pain anymore. He just doesn't want to hear the pain that people are going through anymore. He's a broken, broken man at this point. And it's an interesting place to have him in this. He has no hope, but the future version of him is so full of hope that this plan will work. And you get that excellent scene between the two. It's not that pain you're afraid of. It's yours, Charles. And as frightening as it may be, that pain will make you stronger. If you allow yourself to feel it, embrace it, it will make you more powerful than you ever imagined. It's the greatest gift we have to bear their pain without breaking. And it's born from the most human power. Hope. And McAvoy's so good at playing that trauma, that angst. He cries very well. One of the scenes I really love is the scene where, well, the beginning of that scene that you're mentioning, Jean, which is uh, when he he talks to the Stuart version of himself. But I, I like the start of it where he sees what's happened to Logan, the personal traumas of Logan. And he's just like, you poor, poor man. (laughs) Like... Like, and it's totally sincere, and you feel the weight of of it when McAvoy says it. It's that whole thing of, yeah, no shit. He's had a pretty rough go of it. It's like, really puts Charles' stuff into perspective. It really does. And you know what? Not to go back to my, uh, to my what-if scenario, but, like, it, it also, it also is a culmination of some of Xavier's arc as well yeah that he makes the choice at the end that actually no he needs to not interfere with mystique yeah like to your your issues with telepaths harley that is sort of the the conclusion of of that little idea that actually he needs to not interfere he needs to he needs to let his ideology speak for itself and to not try and control mystique in that moment he explicitly refuses to b says shut her down charles he doesn't and and again of course then he just then they just go and undo it, especially in Dark Phoenix. Charles says that he has been controlling her as long as they've known each other, but he hasn't had to use his mind for that. Mm. He's been emotionally controlling her, trying to keep her as he wants her to be. Mm. Speaking of mystique, I think it's pretty smart what they what they do in the the young timeline with her that they make her a part of 
the regular cast, they give her a lot more to do. Because I think she represents something pretty interesting as a shapeshifter, as someone who can hide her powers and be anyone she wants to be. Yeah. That that's and and to have her be the sort of the metronome swinging between Charles and Eric, being swayed by their ideologies. That's an interesting way to explore the pros and cons of both of those sides of things. Yeah. And and you know, they got Jennifer Lawrence just before she got huge, massive, famous. Like so And before she got tired of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. She she apparently hated the the makeup and I don't blame her. Like Rebecca Romaine was saying on the special features of the first few movies that that takes seven hours to get into that full body makeup. So, you know, Mystique in the past, much bigger fan of clothes than Mystique in the future. Yeah. And apparently for, for Days of Future Past, that was the first time that it was a bodysuit. Yeah. Mm. Not prosthetics being applied to the actress's naked body. Mm. Can't blame her. Yeah. Like, that's just, like, I I don't have the patience to sit in a chair for eight hours and have people paint me blue. I just don't. It's also why they do that to Beast as well. Mm. Because Nicholas Salt also said that the process is miserable and, with all the fur and stuff, incredibly sweaty. Oh, yeah. And you know what? There's also the, just the practical studio element of it. When you've got one of the most famous actresses in the world, you want to be able to put a face on a poster. Exactly. You want Absolutely. people to be able to recognise it. You know? When I... Look, I've got still got uh, still got my Blu-ray copy of X Men: Dark Phoenix here. You know, it's Jennifer Lawrence's face on the poster. Yeah. It's not Mystique. It's not blue. So where's mutant and proud? Oh, she swings between wanting to be blue, not wanting to be blue, and then being happy to be blue. Yes, this is the argument. Which is just it. The franchise wore itself out. It went too long. They should. They shouldn't have continued. If they continued the X Men franchise after Days of Future Past, they should have gone a different route with it than just using the same characters and have them repeating the same ideological ideas. Yeah. And while I like Apocalypse a lot, I like a lot of moments in it. And you know that I really like Dark Phoenix. It is the same stuff over and over again. And when it comes to some of the more side characters like Cyclops and whatever. It's interesting to see them have to reckon with stuff, but when it's Charles going through the same thing over and it's over, it's diminishing returns. It's diminishing returns. It's fine, but and and the present day iterations like X Men One, Two, and Three, they didn't really have those problems, yeah, because they were trying to do something different each movie. Yeah, like the first movie is about the struggle between Professor X and Magneto. Second movie is about the government. We get more of Wolverine's backstory. Third movie, you get Dark Phoenix, and you get all the stuff with the Cure. Every time they're introducing new ideas to play around with. Yeah, and then you've got stuff like Logan and the Wolverine. Even X Men Origins Wolverine to a certain yeah, extent, which switch up location mm. and switch up story structure. X Men o- Origins Wolverine revenge story. And by the time you get to first class, that's the part where I start to wince a bit because that's we're really just starting to repeat the same ideological ideas at that point. Mm. It's not nearly as bad as it gets in Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix, but let's talk about Trask. Another another weird continuity snarl that he's played by Peter Dinklage in this movie, a a a little person who is white, whereas at the end of The Last Stand, he is a black person of Regular stature. Yeah. Two different Bolivar Trasks. Yeah. Or something serious happened to him in the meantime. (laughs) Trask is very interesting in this. And 
Dinklage talked about him in an interview where he said he feels like he's a mutant himself because of his dwarfism. And there's a lot of self-hate there and rage against himself in the character. And that's an interesting I, I, I love direction. the bit where Stryker asks, you really hate them, don't you? And then Trask is like, no, I actually quite admire them. They are capable of astounding feats. They can do all this stuff and show us where we can go next. They will give us the capacity to save our species. He's a complex character, and and, and Dinklage plays him that way. And he, when Dinklage talks about him in, in interviews, he's like, you know, he doesn't, he's not the villain. He's not the bad guy. He's not doing this for bad reasons. He is, he is a political operator mm. and he is kind of morally gray and, and opaque, but he's not, you know, chuckling evilly while he ties, ties a woman to, to a train track. He is do he, he has made the calculation that coming out of the Vietnam war, that this is a way to unite everybody. Yeah. That, but he's also made the calculation a not totally unreasonable one that mutants are a, ge- are a genuine threat and that if they wanted to, they could cause a whole lot of problems, which is sort of the – we didn't talk about it last week, but that's kind of like the problematic undercurrent of this allegory. Like, sure, you can compare them to uh, ethnic minorities or you can compare them to gay people, but black people can't shoot lasers out of their eyes and then gay people can't, you know, shoot lightning from the sky unless they've been keeping that on the down low. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not a one-to-one parallel because these mutants, as Trask expresses in that, that Oval Office scene, have – there is a genuine risk if any of them mm. were were to choose to do a bad thing. She, he, he says it like, this is Magneto. He controls metal. That's your entire military. She can shapeshift into anyone. Even you, Mr. President. She could walk in, order a nuclear strike. She'd be a little bit more cogent than the actual Richard Nixon, but – Oh no, Richard Nixon was cogent. He was just evil. A dick. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I love that uh, little nod where they turned the tape off. Like that's supposedly the eighteen and a half minutes of missing tape in the in the in the Nixon archives. That is quite amusing. Um in the comics there is a mutant, I think by the name of Matthew Malloy, whose one power he is a mutant, but his single power is to explode once. <laughs> what in his Don't life? Reforming nothing in his life. Just once. If he explodes, Don't he we dies. All have the power to explode once if we really wanted to. Like if we really put our mind to it, couldn't we? Couldn't we pull that off? Is that you're really not going to spontaneously combust, Lawson? No matter how much you try. <laughs> then how does he even know that he has that power? They tested the mutant gene. Ah. Oh. So his parents got him tested just to see if they needed to. You know, have any precautions or, you know, stuff like that. They took him to Charles Xavier. He told them that his power was to explode like a megaton (laughs) bomb just once. Killing him in the process. Killing him and everybody in a quite a large radius around him. He gets taken in by the school and then the rest of the students go, Oh, so what's your power, Matthew? I explode. Oh, that's cool. Can you show us? No! So, is this played straight, or is it, like, a kind of a joke? Oh, no, it's played, like, deathly straight. Oh, like, God. becomes, like, actually kind of sad. But it's, like, there are people with those sorts of powers when you think about mutants. Like, you never get the mutants with the dodgy powers, like the mutant who has the power to, I don't know, 
conjure grapes out of thin air or something. Like, it's not very useful. Then there's Rogue. Like, there are some people whose lives will be much, much worse because of their power. Ooh, ooh, I just remembered. Can we unpack the fact that they tell us, they first try to tell us that Magneto killed Kennedy and then they pull the rug out under us and say that he was trying to save Kennedy? That's why the bullet curved? Because Kennedy was a mutant? I don't think... Like, you could read that two ways. He could have either been saying Kennedy was a mutant, or he could have been saying Kennedy cared. The the writers say that he was a mutant. What was his mutant power? What was his power? I don't know. Big dick, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what was his power? Pulling Marilyn Monroe, he'd have to be a mutant to get that. Well, come on. Yeah, he was a player. Like, his, the real yeah, Kennedy yeah. was, like... His mutant power. He's got a gigantic hog. <laughs> but, like, seriously, um, like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and find it, the actual wording, but they did say what the, uh, the power was. Oh. Here we go. Magneto claims John F. Kennedy was a mutant. According to Simon Kimberg, JFK's mutant ability is hypnotic charm. Hmm. Which makes sense, given how charismatic he is remembered as being as, as a politician. Hmm. The ability to sort of, like, press upon people. To, like, shift them towards his line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I can see it, but anyway. I kind of liked it better with the implication <laughs> that Magneto killed Kennedy. Like, can you imagine it? Like, Because I was just picturing, like... Ian McKellen back at the temple, like sitting next to Colossus or something, is like, uh, you know, I was once imprisoned for a decade for killing Kennedy. <laughs> like, Can you imagine what the bloody conspiracy theory videos and stuff? Can you imagine Oliver Stone's JFK? But by the end, Donald Silver, Donald Silver, well, they made that. They they made a um, like I think it was a some like internet experience. What do you call them? A ARG. Oh, yeah. To promote the movie that had a whole bunch of that in it. And they went into the conspiracy theory theories around it. <laughs> I love the idea of Donald Sutherland just saying, oh, yeah, it was Magneto. Why did he do it? <laughs> God knows. Speaking of, of US presidents, how terrible is that Richard Nixon performance? It's not great. It's, <laughs> he doesn't look like him. He doesn't sound like him. It's, it's very unusual. At no point does he say, I'm not a crook. I've I've seen better Nixons. Yeah, everyone's seen better Nixons. This He's is like, a pretty low level. He is Nixon, the most fictionalized honest. president I've ever seen. Oh yeah, like you see him in a lot of movies at that time. You got Watchmen. I I quite like the Nixon in that one. You've got a bunch of Frost other... Nixon. Literally, like the movie Dick. It's like he I. I, I honestly wonder if he's had the most actors portraying him out of every president. Because Lincoln, Lincoln has had a few. Yeah. Yeah, but like back in the very early days of American cinema, like the first 50 years, all the black and white stuff and all the early color and talky stuff, they did a lot with the American Revolution. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised to find that like George Washington George. or John Adams or Thomas Jefferson, that they really racked up a lot of points in the very early goings of things that still get added to occasionally. Now I'm wondering, most most depicted US president. Because Nixon is definitely up there. Oh, he'd have to be. Lincoln. Right. Lincoln has appeared in 130 times. Who's next under that? Uh, George Washington. Mm. 
Hang on. Let, let, there's a whole thing here. So Abraham Lincoln, number 130 appearances. George Washington, number two, 70 appearances. Ulysses S. Grant, number oh. three, 47 appearances. Hmm. Thomas Jefferson, number four, 46. It's the early ones. Nixon seems to be tied for number five with George W. Bush. Right, okay. For th- with 36 appearances each. Fair enough. The, let me just see here. There are only three U.S. presidents who have never been depicted. John Tyler, who was the one that died 30 days after he was yep. inaugurated. James Buchanan and Warren G. Harding. All of the uninteresting ones. Well, there are some interesting ones that they just haven't. Like Herbert Hoover presided over the Depression and was blamed for a lot of it. He's only ever been in one thing. Hmm. Oh, that's odd. Which is funny because he apparently sucked. Anyway. Did you not get the joke, Harley? Yes, I got that. I just wasn't amused. Oh. <laughs> oh, Hoover. Ah. Anyway. Like the vacuum cleaner. You should you should quit your day job and take it on the road, John. Please. Take it on the road. <laughs> Harley and I will be fine. We'll just we'll just keep doing what we're doing. I'm sure you'll achieve great success. I'm an audience of one to my own comedy special. Let's talk about Quicksilver. Now, this is the time in a bottle scene is oh, yeah. one of those like standout moments from mm. the film. Brilliant. Evan Peters plays Peter Maximoff. This was around the same time that Ivan Taylor Johnson was also playing Pietro Maximoff. Yeah, because there's some sort of select group of mutant characters who actually don't fall under mm. the deal, so... Well, it's complex because, let's put it this way, so Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are both very significant X-Men and Avengers characters. Because in the comics, they are the children of Magneto. Yeah, they've worked out this deal where they share the characters. Mm. It just so happens that Marvel Entertainment, Marvel Studios, was more interested in keeping on the character of Scarlet Witch. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas uh, Fox found a lot more interest in the character of Quicksilver. Yeah. They could u- they could both use the characters. But it was like the whole thing when they appear in uh, in the Avengers, they couldn't mention that they were mutants. They couldn't mention that Magneto was their father. They simply called them gifted. Yeah. So Evan, play- Evan Peters plays Quicksilver here. It's a nice little first look at the character. Yeah. He's, he's only, a, you know, in there for how long would you say? Up to 10 minutes less? Yeah, maybe. But boy, howdy. Does that scene in that kitchen leave an impact? Yeah. It's also one of the times that I think that, that the repeating of it really works when they do it in Apocalypse mm. to Because they take it bigger. Yeah. And it's a better song, Sweet Dreams. Yeah. Mm. But so, like, Magneto's been kept in this underground bunker place. Which is where they eventually keep Trask. And it's like, uh, why not just put him in a regular federal prison? That was one of the scenes that was added in the road cut. Yeah, yeah, mm. but my question is, he can't, Trask can't control metal. Yeah, I know. It, it's just, a, it's just a, a thematic, well, he got his, you know. But he was trying, he was trying to wipe out the mutants and now he's held in a cell that specifically was built to contain mutants. I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm just saying that thematically that that's the connection. Yeah. And they, like, Charles Xavier, Wolverine, and Beast have brought Quicksilver in to break him out of 
underneath the Pentagon. All they had to do to convince him to join up with them is say, do you want to break into the Pentagon? And he was like, yeah, I'll do that. But it's it's one of those examples, it's one of the perfect examples of the use of super speed Yeah. in cinema. Again, there's the scene in Apocalypse, which takes it to that much grander scale. And it's interesting, because in this scene, you see him moving, you know, in regular speed when everyone else is basically standing still, but there's but also- he the, moves even faster He moves even that. faster to get to certain places in that. So, how fast is this kid? Like, like ridiculously fast. Unmeasurably. Unmeasurably fast. And the, I love the little touch where he's he's not putting much force behind touching things. He's just like, tap, nudge, because if he goes any faster he than that... He taps the guy's cheek, and you know for a fact that, that if he touched him just a little bit harder, that guy's head would have spun around like a top. I think it's quite amusing, those, those scenes. I do also want to just, like, say, just give credit also to John Ottman, who is both composer... And editor. Oh, yeah. That I really like what he does here. I like to score a lot, but I also think it's really smart the way that he connects both timelines. He keeps it legible, especially as he's he's intercutting between those different things that we mentioned earlier. That's all really interesting stuff. And he's doing two persons, two people's work, and he does exceptional at both of them. Look, it's not my favorite score that I've ever heard in a superhero thing or in any movie. It's not even my favorite X-Men score, but it's still a great score that has a lot of impact on people and he also edits the film in a really brilliant way. So you gotta give major props to him. Hmm. Particularly the Rogue cut. The Rogue cut restores a lot of those interesting callbacks, those mirroring things between the past and future. Like we mentioned the storming of the X-Mansion in the future. And it just works exceptionally well in this version of the film. I found the theatrical cut fine when I saw it the first time, but this is certainly the way to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It restores the emotion, you know? I never got emotional while watching the theatrical cut. I got emotional while watching this version. And, and like, the way that it restores some of those echoes, like the fact that their plan with Rogue is the same as Magneto's plan, it feel it, it has... That, that poetry to it that we talked about. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Wolverine in this. Hmm. Uh, just quickly. He's there. He's not nearly so central as a lot of the other characters. He's a point of view character for the most part. He has his moments. And, you know, that's the other continuity thing is that it's Mystique that gets him at the end, but it's actually Stryker that gets him when you get to yeah. Apocalypse. They should have just digitally removed the glint in her eyes yeah. just to make it make sense more. Like, like, and and that's fine too. Let's just shuffle him off with Striker. We don't need to do anything else. But that's how he gets the claws. Yeah, and I like how with Wolverine he has to take on that mentor position to Charles instead of it being the other way around, and that makes Wolverine have to really think about the person who he was in the past and who he is in the future and the things he's been through. Also, you see his bare ass in the movie. Mm-hmm. Which was at Jackman's insistence, apparently. Yeah, because he said that if if you wake up next to a beautiful woman who you've slept with, you're not going to get out of the bed with boxes on. He apparently said that in Australia, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> Specifically in Australia. Specifically in Australia. Thanks, Hugh. 
But yeah, he's not given as much to work with as he is in The Wolverine or with the original trilogy. Oh, also, by the way, Hugh Jackman's bare butt uncensored on Disney+. Plus. Which he hey. is very happy about, apparently. Like, he posted on Instagram. Oh, yeah, Daryl Hannah's butt. We have to cover that with really bad CGI hair for Splash. But no, if you want to see Hugh Jackman's, you can see it in 4K on Disney+. Plus. So, is there anything in the parents' guide for this? There are a couple of things regarding to the alcohol and drugs section. <laughs> okay, sure. One character is a drunkard, and another drinks socially. <laughs> Okay, who's the one who drinks socially? I think they're referring to when Magneto takes a takes a drink on the plane. I guess. I guess. But then, this is my favourite bit. A crucial plot point of the film deals with a depressed character's drug-like dependency to a shape-shifting serum, which enables him to walk on the expense of his powers. Since this drug is actually completely fictional in reality, and exists only in the universe of this movie, there is no danger of your kids running out and scoring some. To disable their mutant powers. <laughs> but they could run out and get any number of drugs that are also taken with a needle. So it's like, if you're going to have an issue with the depiction of a needle drug well, substance... Yeah, there was an, there was another item there that talks about how that particular drug kind of looks like heroin. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's definitely evoking heroin. Well, yeah, that's, that's because it looks like Charles Xavier is about to... S- put on some doors and just zone out completely on a loofah. Oh, yeah. He's got that long 70s hair going on. He's one of those hippies that Nixon hated so much. <laughs> hippies! Let's talk a bit about our MPV- MVPs and our favourite scenes. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Ian McKellen, well, I'm sure. No, he's not allowed to say Ian McKellen. Didn't we decide that we're not going to be that strict No, I am going to be that strict, otherwise it would be Ian McKellen again. I know your answer is Ian McKellen. Just yes. assuage John with your second. So I actually favorite. thought about this for a bit because we're. I mean, we're doing Logan next week. So when it gets to the MVP section, there I'm like, I've got to choose between two people, and they're both in this movie too. But I can't give it to either of them in this movie because mm. they're not the MVP of this exactly. movie. Exactly. So I'm left in a bit of a tough spot, which I will return to next week. But. With this, I've actually, if I'm not allowed to choose Ian McKellen, then I'm going with James McAvoy, because I think that his performance in this movie is really strong. A lot of the angst stuff, the emotion stuff, the way that he interacts with Wolverine and with Patrick Stewart when he sees the Patrick Stewart version, he he bridges that gap between the first class version of Professor X and the present day version of Professor X in a really interesting way. And there's real power and emotion to what he's doing. He's giving the most emotional performance of the movie, and I think he's really good in it. I'm actually... I can take or leave a lot of his other turns as Charles Xavier. In Apocalypse, he's all right. I kind of don't like him in Dark Phoenix because of some of the things that Dark Phoenix are asking him to do. I don't think it fits well. And in First Class, I find his his... Austin Powers shtick annoying. So. <laughs> oh, behave. This is like just really good. And McAvoy's a, a fantastic actor, just in general. So I, I've got to give it to him here. In terms of my favorite scene, but really to Ian McKellen. In terms of, in terms of my favorite scene or sequence, I've got to go with that scene 
the intercutting of Magneto attacking the president with the stadium and the Sentinel fight in the future. Storm going down, Magneto going down, him. I, I adore that bit of him backing towards the the door, bringing up all of the shrapnel to block it behind him. And then in this version, it's, it's Elliot Page because he was now free to not have to have his hands around Hugh Jackman's head. Because <laughs> Anna Paquin took the role. Yes, because so he pulls Magneto back in. In the, in the theatrical cut, Blink opened up a portal that he stepped back through. I, I adore that. I love the music that kicks in there. I, I get a kick out of that. But, like, I love how that ties all of the themes together, the way that that's in a cut, and that it, it's sort of a goodbye to the, Mag- the McKellen and Stewart versions, and, and it's the final conclusion of their iterations of the characters' arcs and how they relate to each other. I get a little sad that we don't see Ian McKellen in the happy future, mm. that we never really find out what happens to him. But yeah, i got to go with that scene because it's just like, it's everything that I wanted that movie to be right at that moment. So, yeah. Holly? My MVP would have to be James McAvoy. Like Lawson said, it's perhaps his most interesting turn as Professor Xavier. I just love the line read, oh, you poor man. Mm. Like, and the, the weight he gives to that, he's feeling all of Logan's pain. And this is a point where Logan remembers everything because he's had his entire memory restored. How, by the way? Like, I know that I know that what you're saying is true, but that's another thing that's never really explained. When did he get his memory back? Maybe Professor X helped him after the Wolverine and restored it all. And McAvoy is just one of those fantastic emotional actors. And his chemistry with a lot of the rest of the cast are fantastic, particularly Fassbender. There's reason that... Those two iterations of the characters are sort of... They coexist on the same level. Almost like they they need one another, in a way. And you can really tell that in the performance. My favourite scene... It's all the stuff in the future. It's seeing that crapsack world, seeing them all have their last stands, and seeing them lose at times, but ultimately succeed. You get a lot of really cool death scenes for the characters... Uh, you get Bishop, like, absorbing all of the Sentinel's energy and then exploding. You get Iceman sacrificing himself twice. You get Sunspot even fighting on after his arm is cut off. Colossus ripped in two. It's just expertly done stuff. And it looks gorgeous. So, I think, for my MVP, I'm gonna give it to John Ottoman. Not necessarily for the score, but for the editing. Because he has managed to merge all of these scenes really well and has found the perfect moments to cut between things. Which, when you're basically making two movies, can be difficult. And he pulled it off very, very well. While also, you know, pulling Double Duty as the composer as well. Which, mad props to him for that. My favourite scene... I'm not... I'm not sure, but I th- the part that really stuck out to me this time was when Magneto was dropping the stadium around the White House, because it just looks phenomenal, and everything that's happening in that scene, the music, the editing, the acting from everyone, it's just brilliant. The scope of it is exceptional. O- other than that, everything with Quicksilver, because he's fun. 
And he's wearing a Pink Floyd shirt, so he gets extra points from me. So, Lawson, you already mentioned we are watching Logan. Yes, next week we'll be going to Logan, which I think was the other point that they could have just had that be the last X-Men movie, but they insisted on making more. Um, If you would like to watch along at home, you can find it for... It's not available for streaming on Disney+, Plus on account of everyone dropping the F-bomb and getting their arms chopped off. Can't edit around that shit. (laughs) I would love to see them try. It is instead available for purchase or rental in Australia on the Apple, Fetch, and Amazon stores if anyone would like to follow along with us at home. It's not on Netflix or anything anymore? I don't think so. It's Hmm. not listed on this app that I use. Fair enough. All right, so if you want to reach us, you can reach us through our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Data Candy County. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give episode-specific feedback and also recommendations for John and I. You can also comment, rate, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. And those help better for the algorithm. They they help get the show noticed by the algorithm, so it promotes it. But the comments on that are for the show on the whole. Like I said before, episode-specific feedback goes on the Twitter. Yeah, I think that's the whole spiel. Uh, I've been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. I have been Sean Lewis, and I will be Harley Lewis. If you're lost, you can go.